Well, hello everyone. This is Keith of MBT Events, welcoming you to a special COVID-19 episode of the MBT Fireside Chat. We have some lovely people joining us today from all over the world, hopefully all safe, well, and in self-isolation, I hope. Hello, everyone. <laughs> hello, Keith. Hi, Tom. Hi, everyone. So, okay, just a quick note. Today is not going to be a political forum on what is or isn't being done about the situation by governments around the world. Rather, it's about seeing the bigger picture. So on to business. It's March 22nd, 2020. The world is shutting down all around us as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. Las Vegas has gone dark here in the States for the first time in 60 years. Pubs in the UK are closed. Schools and exams cancelled. Cities are on lockdown. Regions are on lockdown. Whole countries are on lockdown. People are obviously very concerned and we are all affected by this. So... How can we, how do we, as a collective, make sense of what is happening right now? A lot of people have asked for Tom to weigh in on the crisis with his thoughts and insights. So, Tom, just what is going on and what should we be doing and thinking right now? Okay, well, what I hope to do with with this uh, little gathering is to uh, give a a little bit of a, a talk in the beginning to offer my big picture view of what's going on and what it means to us uh, individually and collectively, because I think there is a lot of meaning here that that uh, maybe most people are missing, a lot of significance here that, that we generally aren't talking about that uh, I think we should talk about. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about, uh, you know, what you should do and the five steps of, uh, you know, avoiding getting the disease and so on. There's plenty of that on on the YouTube and everywhere else. So that's not really what this is, at least not what I'm going to talk about is about. Um, I see this this um, this experience that we're all having with this virus actually has some very positive things about it. It has some some very good um, side effects that I'm that I'm seeing. It has some bad side effects as well, but let's kind of talk about it in the in the bigger picture. Um, to begin with, um, some of you are a little new to to you know my my thinking and whatever, but but most are not. So you understand that I look at the world in terms of fear versus love. Fear is what is the problem, and love is the solution. And that's a very simplified viewpoint, you know, of MBT. It's about caring, about other. Love is about other. Fear is about self. Well, you can boil that down to uh, something a little more familiar to us, uh, love and fear being a little abstract, and that is fear always being about self, then people who are fearful tend to be self-focused or self-centered because fear is about them. And people who are are uh, coming from a place of love tend to be other-focused. It's about others. So we can just talk about this kind of self-centeredness versus other-centeredness in our culture and in our beings. And when we do that, it puts all of this in a little different perspective. And that is that What's different about this virus is 
that it is a little more um, robust. It's a little more efficient in how it transmits itself, which means it's a little easier to catch and a little easier to give, a little easier to throw, a little easier to catch. So that is one thing that makes it different. The second thing that makes it different is it has a little higher mortality rates, particularly for older people. Not so much for the very young, as many uh, of these viruses do, but uh, particularly for the older people, it has a higher mortality rate. At least it looks like that now. Of course, we're in the early stages of it, and we don't really know at the end how all these statistics will come out, but it seems to be a little more, a little more deadly than these viruses typically are, and considerably uh, easier to catch, easier to pass and transmit. Okay, That's why the reaction to this one has been different than our reaction to other viruses. But I don't think that's, that's the only reason. Okay, So what the, what the, um, the general consensus of the medical profession has been, and the virologists and the other public health officials is that we need to do everything we can not to get the virus. And if we have it and do get it, we have to do everything we can not to transmit it on to anybody else. So that is just the simple, you know, solution is to not transmit the virus. You know, we talk about things going viral on the internet. Well, going viral with a virus, you know, that's exactly the way it works. One person gives it to another who gives it to another, and pretty soon it spread very wide through millions of people very quickly. And that's where we are now. That's We're in the beginning of that process. Uh, well, I guess it started a, a week or so ago, but we're still in the early stages of that process of passing it on. And if we can not pass it on, which also means not get it, then that will be a very good thing. So that's what all of these remedial things are about, not passing it on and not getting it. You've heard me talk about the fact that um, in this schoolhouse that we call our, our physical reality, that we're here to learn, to grow up, to become love, to let go of fear, to let go of self-centeredness. And I often tell people that in this schoolhouse, this is not graduate school, this is not college, this is not even high school, that the level to which we are grown, that is that we have given up self-focus for other focus, is really still at its beginning stages. So this is more like an elementary school where we're struggling to give up our our fear-based attitudes and ways of interacting with each other. Well, have you ever wondered why it is that countries tend to interact with each other much like children? If you look at international relationships, the way countries squabble and fight and, uh, uh, you know, call each other names and all the stuff that you see going on, it kind of sounds like, you know, schoolyard, uh, you know, uh, difficulties, you know, in an elementary school. They don't seem to be able to interact with each other like adults interact with each other. It all seems to be very 
petty. It seems to be small-minded. It seems to very to be very self-centered. And why is that? Why is it that nations act like children when they're interacting with each other? Well, the answer to that will tell us about where we are as people on that scale of, you know, are we, uh, you know, are we new, um, kindergartners? Are we preschool? Are we, uh, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade? About where are we? We, human beings, we in our level of development. Okay, in our, you know, in our societies, within our cultures, we have learned to act, you know, more adult. And we do that because we have rules. These rules are defined as politeness, how to be polite, things to say, things not to say, thank you, please, uh, you know, being courteous, um, not dominating conversations, not being angry, smile a lot. You know, we have all of these rules that help lubricate our social experience. The reason we need these rules is because there's a big difference between acting kind and being kind. You've heard me talk about that. Okay. What we want to do is learn how to be kind, be loving, be caring. And often before you learn to be something like that, you end up acting at first. That's the fake it until you make it idea that you try to act more kind while you're in the process of becoming more kind. So whenever you have a social situation, whenever you have a society, that society becomes civilized when the society has rules that govern behavior, rules that govern what's polite, what's nice, what's a good way to act. That's what makes civilization civilization. Without those rules, then there really is no civilization. So we have these rules. These rules help us act better than we actually are. And we see that all the time when we have, when we have, um, uh, conflicts, when we get desperate, when we're pressed and have our backs against the wall. We kind of see what really comes out and who we really are under the hood. And often all that thin veneer of civilization kind of drops away. And we find that people, when they're in that desperate place, tend to act pretty savagely. They tend to act very self-centeredly. They tend to act, it's all about me and what I want. So that's what's really under the hood. That's what we are. But we have these rules that help us be polite. So children haven't been socialized entirely yet. They don't have those rules. They don't really understand this, uh, uh, you know, the niceties of polite society. And we associate becoming an adult with how well you learn these rules, how well you become socialized, interact with each other. Now, in fact, our whole idea of what... Um, being grown up is, you know, of what uh, being mature is, is really a measure of self-centeredness. Children by nature are more self-centered. That's the way it is when you're very, very young. It's you and this big, scary world out there. And self-centeredness is pretty natural for most children. And as we grow up, we learn to 
hide that self-centeredness more than we learn to get rid of it. We learn to hide it behind all these rules of polite society. Well, okay, back to the international scene. How come we have these viruses that come around all the time? You know, we had the bird flu and we've had swine flu and we've had any number of other viruses that start in a similar place. And many of them start in China. Of course, not all of them, but that seems to be a breeding ground for that sort of thing. And it happens every year. And every few years, we get something that just turns out to be a little worse or a little better, you know, than we had before. And this one turned out to be a little worse because how easy it is to pass on and how deadly it is to old people. So this kind of answers our, our question about why do nations interact with each other like children? Okay. Why don't they act grown up? Because every social system has its own rule set, which is called its culture, that defines the polite rules. Okay, so even in a family, you have rules of behavior in that family. If you go to a schoolroom, there's rules for that schoolroom, how the children act. Okay, children, don't leave the scissors lying on the floor where the younger kids can get that. You know, children, you've got a toy with pointy edges. You have to put that away when you're done. You can't leave it lying around. So we have rules. We are just now, as we're moving from the industrial age into the global age, into the information age, which is going to, is creating the global age, we are just now beginning to see ourselves globally. But we haven't yet developed any rules for politeness in this global society yet. You see, so we have them in the schoolhouse, we have them in the family, so we can act like adults, even if we're not really all that grown up in those situations. But in the global arena, we haven't developed those glo that global understanding, that global sense that we belong to, you know, we're citizens of the world. We belong to this world. We're a part of it. We're interactive with each other. We are just beginning to realize that we affect each other. What happens in China? you know, happens everywhere else. We're all connected. We're all in this thing together, and it's a global thing. Whereas a couple of hundred years ago, in the early Industrial Revolution, it's just a national thing. Nations make their rules, and they have their sovereignty, and that's that, okay? And we are still clinging to that old paradigm. We haven't moved into a global uh, vision yet. So when things come up, like in my country, in, in trade agreements, the big issue there is that you mean this group of people that are going to be trading partners can make laws and rules that bind us to do certain things and not do other things? Well, no way. You see, that abridges our sovereignty. You know, we're not, you know, we're a sovereign nation. We make our own rules. There's not going to be some outside group making rules that we have to obey, that we can be arrested and punished for violating somebody else's rules that are made up in some other country. See, that's a real big problem. So we're kind of stuck in that, that nationalism with our concepts. That's why year after year after year, we can have viruses like this one, you know, transfer from animals to people and then transfer all around 
around the globe, killing literally millions of people, doing a great deal of destruction and and uh, um, and creating difficulties for for thousands and millions of people. Why? Because we cannot address that globally. Because what happens in China? It's China's concern. What happens in the U.S., what happens in Germany, you know, it's their concern. And only they can deal with it. You see what I'm saying? We don't have the understanding and the feeling of global citizens. So we don't have this this idea of all working together to solve a problem. Now, inside a country, we do that. Within a country, we get, you know, we have a problem like this virus, and we all kind of work together to try to minimize it. But internationally, what happens, happens, and we deal with it. Now, that's not true everywhere. Science has shown itself to be very flexible and very international in this, in this, uh, you know, COVID-19. The, the Chinese, when they immediately worked with this, put their data into international databases and virologists and other scientists have been working on this problem from the you know, from the very day one that they knew that it existed. That was all open and it was all global and it was all international. Not a problem. We've, we're beginning to make some success globally as far as, as commerce goes. No problem. But basic public health issues that we see are interactive. What happens one place affects every place else and not only affects it, but affects it dramatically. We're talking about probably millions of dead people by the time this thing is done. That's a pretty dramatic effect around the world. And yet we can't do anything about that. We can't fix that problem that spawns these viruses. We can't work on that. Next year and year after, we're going to spawn more of them. Same places, same ways, and they're going to do the same things. Because... We just don't see that as our problem. We see that as, you know, maybe China's problem or somebody else's problem. So we're not looking at it globally. Well, what this this COVID-19 has done is bring a lot of that to light, that this is a global reality now. It's not just nations against each other, but we all share in what happens in this world. And because of the, of the transportation revolution with the airplanes ferrying people from one part of the globe to another and with even a bigger impact, the internet bringing us all closer, we're living in a more and more global world where things are affecting us from nation to nation to nation, things we pass around, things we learn. And this virus has brought out that in a very dramatic way. And it has caused us to step up to looking at problems internationally. Because as long as it's something that just happens and we say, oh, yeah, okay, we deal with that, and then we forget about it, then we kind of miss the point that we are not really interacting with each other globally as adults because we don't have that sense of all belonging to a global entity. And I think that this COVID-19 is going to be very educational. I think we're all going to kind of feel after this is over and while it's happening that we are citizens of something bigger than just our communities and just our own nations. 
And just that awareness that we are, I think, is going to be the beginning of some significant change because we feel more that we are global citizens. We see that we're, that what happens one place affects other places. So I think that is one thing that'll come into our psyche. Now we bring that back to a more local idea and I see the same thing going on within my country and within other countries is that suddenly we feel like we need to take charge of this, do something about it. We've had these flus go around before. We've had them kill millions of people before. And basically business went on as usual. If you got the flu, you got the flu. You got to keep on working. You got to keep on doing whatever you do. And if you didn't, you didn't. And life moves on. And it just wasn't a big deal to us. Why? Because we are still at that point of our evolution of our consciousness that we're too self-centered to really care a whole lot. If it doesn't affect us directly, then it isn't that important. So that's what we've been doing. Last time the flu went around, it wasn't that long ago that a flu went around. It also killed millions of people. It always does, mostly the old and the young, this time mostly the old. But we've never really reacted like this before. Okay, this is a little more uh, virulent. It's a, a little higher uh, mortality, but it's not like orders of magnitude greater. It's just a little more this way. Okay. But this time we're looking at it and saying, whoa, we have to cooperate. See, cooperate. What's that mean? Other centered. We have to cooperate with each other. We have to cooperate internationally. We have to take steps to, you know, keep the old people from getting this disease. We need to keep steps for keep everybody, you know, as safe as possible. And we're seeing action taken all over the place. The schools were closing. The kids that were at their last year just graduated anyway, even though they missed the last, you know, month of school. Big organizations that have big meetings and lots of people getting close together are taking responsibility for moving that to, to a, uh, a digital format. We're learning that you can stay home and work and be just as productive as you can by dragging your body into work and breathing each other's air. Okay. Now we knew these things were around. Telecommuting has been around a long time, but companies have been very, very stingy at allowing it. Why have they been so stingy? Again, it's back to that fundamental ethic of self-centeredness. Control. You want to control those people. You want to see those people working. You don't want those people to go off and chit-chat with their friends or something. You want to make sure their, you know, bums are on the seat and that they have a pencil in their hand and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing or at least look like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So there's a lack of trust. See, we could have been doing a lot more telecommuting, saving billions, you know, billions worldwide, you know, gallons of oil and pollution in the air and a lot of other things, but we don't because we're too fearful. We're too self-centered. But this COVID-19, we've decided to take it seriously and help people and react and cooperate, which I see as a kind of a C-state move into caring about others a C state move 
and stepping out of our self-centeredness and saying, eh, life goes on as usual. You know, you get it or you're not. You know, life is like that. You know, it's it's a chancy thing. There's always risks. Deal with it. Suck it up, cupcake. You know, we still have to go to work. We still have to do whatever we do. And, and if we get sick, we get sick. Instead of that, it's like, well, we need to protect these people. These people in nursing homes, you know, the very first thing that really was dramatic here in the States was a nursing home in Seattle where a lot of people died all at one time because somebody passed it to a nursing home. And I think there were like 50 people in that nursing home that caught it and died within a couple of weeks. So this is different. We're cooperating. Grocery stores are delivering that never delivered before. They could have always delivered to people. Would have always been a big benefit to people, but now they're doing it. Restaurants are, are uh, you know, taking out and also delivering food to people. Uh, there's lots of things that we have done now. Education has gone digital in most cases. Most classes are continuing, but they're continuing on Zoom and Skype and that sort of thing. Things we could have been doing 10 years ago, but we didn't. But now we are. And I see that as a very positive thing. So, yes, we have this virus. It's going around. It is hurting people. It's going to hurt a lot more before it's done. It's growing very fast. But it's also changing us in ways that I think are very important, ways we've needed to change, making us see things that we didn't see before. So I look at this virus and I say, well, it's a catastrophe in a way. And in another way, I think it's going to be our first major step into being more cooperative, more caring, seeing bigger pictures, seeing the world as our home, not just, you know, our country or our community or our state or whatever. So I think that's the good big picture look that uh, I'd like to put out there that I don't haven't really heard too many people talking about that, but it's very encouraging for me to see all the cooperation that's going on. Businesses now of all sorts are bending over backwards to try to serve their customers without face-to-face connections, doing it digitally, doing it some other way. Things that we could have done the last virus that came through, we could have done that too. <coughs> But we didn't. All right. So I'd like to make a, that's all I want <clears throat> to say, excuse me, about that. But now I'd also like to talk about fear. Uh, all right. And to segue into fear, let me uh, say a few things that will help maybe people out there deal with their fear and with their stress and with their anxiety that they have about this. Because that has been one of the bad things that's happened about this. Stress levels are through the roof. Stress levels are very high. Fear is very high. We don't need more fear, but we're getting more fear. So that's one of the bad things about it. Okay, so... Only when you are confident that all is right with the world, that all is exactly as it needs to be, will you find peace. 
when you realize that the world is exactly as it needs to be to provide us, that is humanity, with the lessons we most need to learn, and when you also realize that everybody is doing the best they can to evolve the quality of their consciousness they came in with, that is, doing the best they can with who and what they are, then you will see that everything is just as it needs to be. We humans interact with each other. Things and situations will happen to us, individually and collectively, and we must make every effort to respond to those things, to embrace those things with the best choices we can muster, choices that are always positive, caring of other, and without fear, choices that reflect our understanding, compassion, and love. Now, realizing these things allows one to accept reality that is daily life as it is, without stress, anger, or fear, thus providing us with a sense of peace and tranquility, even as we live within a sometimes harsh and scary world. With these realizations, one sees that current events, good, bad, or indifferent, represent a dance of opportunity, opportunity to learn and grow and opportunity to make choices based on love and caring. Yes, most of us tend to be slow learners, but this schoolhouse called life will always patiently and continually present us with the exact opportunities we most need right now to grow up, to evolve the quality of our consciousness until we finally get it, however long that takes. So only when you are confident that all is right in the world will you find peace and tranquility within the chaos of daily existence. So my idea is that all is just the way it should be in the sense we are ready now to grow up. This virus has been the, the challenge, the simu, you know, the simulation, the stimulation that is kind of kicking us in the pants to get us to rise to the occasion and be more caring, more thoughtful, less self-centered. It's right where it needs to be, right on time when it needs to be, right when we're ready to learn that lesson. So here we are, okay? It's not necessarily a pleasant situation, but it's what we learn from. It's how we grow up. So if you look at the world and say, well, everything's just exactly the way it needs to be. Our lessons are just what we need at the time we need them. And if we grow up from it a little, if when this thing is passed, we don't forget all of it, but we just left with a little bit of increment of change toward becoming love, it's all been worth it. That's what we're here to do. So only when you see the world as nearly perfect as it is, can you live in a world that's as dysfunctional as ours and still find peace and tranquility and happiness? That is no stress, you see? So that's the attitudes you need to have when you're stressed about things like that is realize that things are because this is, this is the way we generate them. This is who we are. We generate this kind of stuff because that's the way we are. So that brings us to fear. And fear is the last thing I want to talk about, and that is that fear, you know, is the problem. And it's the problem many ways. So many people are getting more and more fearful about this virus, and they might get it, and their loved ones might get it, and so on. But fear 
always makes the problem worse. So if you are fearful, a few things happen. One, if you are fearful, and I'm not talking you, obviously, just the people in this little group. We're talking to the 100,000 people that will watch this video. If you are fearful, you will damage, you will decrease the effectiveness of your immune system. When you're fearful, that puts your body, your biochemistry into the, what they used to call the fight or flight, and now they're calling the fight or flight or freeze uh, mode. And when it does that, it takes all of your energy and it, it focuses it on the fight or the flight or the freeze, okay? which means it takes energy away from other functions like your immune system. So the biochemistry of fear is a biochemistry that leaves you more susceptible to catching viruses and everything else. It suppresses your immune system when you're fearful, when you're anxious, when you have anxiety. So your fear will make it easier for you to catch these bugs and harder for you to overcome them, which means your sickness will be deeper and last longer. So that's what your fear buys you. Besides that, you all know that you modify future probability by your intent. And when your intent is fearful, the probability of those things that frighten you grows. Probability that those frightening things will actually happen to you grows. So you create situational probabilities that make it more likely you're going to get the virus and that it's going to be ugly. You're going to have a hard time with it that it's going to hurt you, that it'll be difficult because that's what your fear is. That's what you create. And lastly, fear itself is like a virus. If you're fearful, other people catch that from you. And if you take fearful things that you get on your Facebook account and you forward them, that is just like passing a fear virus around. You know, the conspiracy theories, you know, it's more fear. It's all about, you know, oh, no, the virus is going to get us and all the things it's going to do and all the evil people that have started this virus on purpose. And, you know, all the rest of that stuff is just meant to scare us. And that fear spreads just like the virus. And then you have all those other effects. It makes the bad stuff more probable. It makes everybody more susceptible. So as that fear junk comes across your computer or your phone, do just the same thing as you're doing with the virus. Distance yourself from it and don't pass it on. Okay, that's the, that's the thing. So we need to let the fear go. So you need to be able to look at this world, however ugly it is, however you know, scary it is, and realize that it's just what we need to grow up. And growing up is really what it's all about. So, yay, maybe we will learn something here. It's not a terrible, awful thing. It's just something we have to accept and deal with in a positive way. Do the best we can. It, whatever happens is going to happen. We get to deal with it, and we get to learn from it. So that's my kind of bigger picture viewpoint of this of this virus. So in ways I find it very positive. I've seen more cooperation among people 
in the last two weeks than I've probably seen in the previous two decades. People really trying to bend over backwards in any way they can to be helpful in this situation to other people. And that by itself is nothing short of amazing. So that's all I had. And uh, I just open it up to everybody else to uh, talk about it or ask questions or say your own two cents worth. This is all a group and we're, everybody's welcome to talk and everybody's welcome to, you know, to uh, ask questions. So well, thank we do you have very a much for, for listening. I am moderating. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. Tom, the other good thing is not only are we seeing uh, people, the best of people coming out, but we're seeing the earth heal itself. The waters are getting clearer. Um, things, the air quality is better. So they're, they're all positive things that are coming out of it, right? Yes, I've heard that. I've heard they even have fish now living in the canals of Venice. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, things are happening because people are staying home and not making the messes they usually make out there in the world. Right. So, yes, there's lots of things that, you know, and it's nice that like the water clears in Venice, but what that tells us is that when we live in these everyday, you know, kind of negative situations like filthy water, is that we're the cause of it and we can change it. Whereas otherwise we just say, well, it's just life. The water's like that. You know, nothing can be done about it. But we find out that's not true in many cases. There's a lot we can do about it. If we just cared enough, we're, you know, more other focused, we could do things that, about it so that yeah that's a good example um i I quite like to bring your larger consciousness system into the discussion really because i think that's a really important aspect of it Uh, because what the way i see it is what's happening is up to now to put it into a context we have been ravaging the world as if there's no tomorrow. For example, the airlines have put billions of tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. In in the last five years, enough to power uh, 50 coal power stations, the same pollution. The uh, cruise ships, they're pumping 60,000 kilotons of uh, sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere to give millions of people lung cancer. And and this is, uh, according to the Financial Times, uh, there are 260, billion, 260 million cars uh, creating the same pollution as the cruise liners do. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, the uh, people who were firstly affected were people from a cruise liner. They had the highest rate of infections. Now, the thing, the way I see it is... Up till now, we all seen each, seen ourselves as being separate individuals who are only here to fulfill our dreams, to self-satisfy ourselves, to uh, self-pleasure ourselves, no matter what the cost. There's nothing else. It's only me, me, me all the time. Now, the way I see it from the larger consciousness system, we are not separated. When I when I meditate. I can see that at the base level of reality is pure intelligence. And this intelligence permeates the whole universe, every atom, every cell in the body, 
every microbe, everything, everything that exists at the base level of its reality is pure intelligence. And what I see is that this intelligence is putting a stop to it. And it chooses the way, the best way this can be accessible. It presses a reset button. And by, and, and the way it's doing it, it's giving us this incredible virus. Now this virus is not just any old virus. It is a virus which is very intelligent. For example, it affects mostly old people, mostly the people who have been largely responsible of creating the world into a disaster zone, okay? The young children, the kids, are, are totally spared at this stage. We don't know how it's going to be evolving. And now what it is doing, it creates a, a, a consciousness, a larger consciousness, um, a consciousness which affects all of us, and we act in a collective. For the first time in history, we are acting as a collective consciousness. And the way we are doing it is by pressing the pause button, pressing the reset button. It's almost as if we are acting as one. One government starts to say, okay, we've got to stop this virus, and the best way to stop it is such and such. We all knew a long time ago that the only way that capitalism, the way we know it, is taking us into hell, into the extinction, extinction not just of ourselves, our, our human species, but the, into the extinction of the whole species, the whole uh, wildlife things. The other thing the virus did, it started off by people consuming wild animals. Now that should be a clear sign to us that we are doing something wrong here. We are still consuming animals, for example, we incarcerating pigs into a small compartment, which is so small that they can't even turn over or turn around. We are ravaging the, uh, the Amazon rainforest in order to create, create cattle feed. And we don't give a damn about what we do to our atmosphere and to the global uh, climate. We just simply ought to get ourselves satisfied no matter what cost. So the virus started as a result of animal consumption. Now, now, now it has spread. Now for the first time, the beneficial aspect of what the larger consciousness instructed the human race is to say, look, we are one species. We are not separate individuals. We live and, or we die together. And now what consciousness has done, it, it pressed the reset button. Now that is a very beautiful thing. As we just noticed for the first time, the air is clear. If you look at the space uh, station pictures of China, there's no pollution. The same in Northern Italy. If you go to Venice, there are fish in the sea, swans in the lagoons. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now by the end of the year, we will see Hopefully, the isolation lasts long enough. We will see there is a regeneration of nature. The same way as in a Chernobyl disaster, suddenly wildlife had a chance to, to, to catch up or take over. 
And so now this is a great opportunity which we have received, that the larger consciousness system, of which we are all part of, has given us an incredible opportunity. The other thing is so intelligent, what is happening. For example, now the governments have come together, and what is really interesting in, in England in particular, we recently had an election, the Labour Party, which wanted to promote universal basic income, to help all the people and and uh, the poor in particular and make people create a little bit of uh, equilibrium between the extremes in society. Suddenly a conservative government was voted in and they in introduced the laws which are assigned to the left. But they're not left laws. They are laws which are based on common sense. Now even uh, somebody like Trump suggested that people should have a thousand dollars in their pocket to survive because we all know the only way to to uh, get out of this crisis is by giving people food a roof over their head and dignity the opposite would be absolute chaos and war so that's that's the other really intelligent thing that this virus has given us suddenly uh, countries as you said earlier tom Suddenly people are growing up, countries are growing up, they, they're getting together, they're seeing uh, they have got a common denominator, which is survival. So, so that's the thing that is taking place. And I mean, I, I don't even know where to stop because it's so, so absolutely clever, because not only are people acting as a collective right across the, across the globe, but the other thing is, people are forbidden of going out and seeking destruction and, and entertainment and, and getting away from themselves rather than focusing on themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, millions of people are now condemned to be indoors. Okay, they can watch Netflix and can do all sorts of dis, uh, destruction. But there's a reset going on. Suddenly the social environment is changing. We suddenly have to... Uh, content with our own company. We have to face our own family. Okay. We have to sort of deal with the problems that brings. Before mm -hmm. we had the time, oh, we just have to go to work. Okay. We, we, we can get away from it. Now we are confronted with the people we are most close to and we are confronted with ourselves. We have to, we have to think now, what are we going to do? Okay, now the other thing, which is very, very clever and very intelligent of giving us this virus, which I see is a godsend, because in order to progress and succeed as a human race, we have to get press a reset button. We wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise, because I just read in the Financial Times that the Airbus, they wanted to double the number of aircraft, which would have doubled the pollution which would have added the equivalent of another 200 million cars onto our roads, okay? So the airline is affected. They've been literally taken down. And we now have to think, oh, what other, as you, as you said, what other ways of communication do we have which don't pollute the air? We had it for a long time, and it's a digital revolution. And now we can take uh, charge of it. And as you said, the the element of mistrust, okay, we wanted to have the, 
the workers tied to their desk, chained to their desk, and not giving them the credit that they are just as much or even better equipped to work and to produce goods if they're not chained to a desk, like in the sort of 19th century, you know, that we don't have to be modern slaves chained to our desk. We have got the dignity and the adulthood to stand on our feet and and do it much better. We can do it now by cooperating, by by discovering that we are all in, all in it together, that we are one species, one collective. And that's so beautiful. And I think what's going to happen is, I, I just hope, lots of people now who are sort of deprived of their old habitual way, they think, oh, I hope this is going to be over soon. I want to go I want it to be back to normal. That's not what we need. We don't want it back to normal. We want it to be totally abnormal. We want people to have the opportunity to uh, to make use of their creativity, to think out of the box, to be confronted with new situations. And that's why I think the, the virus is a super intelligent intervention of the, the the larger consciousness system. That's how I see it. And now we have we have given the been given the opportunity to act and to change. And it's beautiful. There are lots of things, lots of things I discovered which which really amused me. For example, the first thing that happened, people started stockpiling toilet paper. <laughs> and that is a really interesting metaphor. Because what it meant, we have created so much shit. We need to go <laughs> clean it up, you know. And so everybody piled out to get toilet paper, toilet paper, as if that was a number one priority in this in this world, you know. And 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 this is what's happening. The other thing is, of course, the other thing it brings out. Excuse me. As you said, Tom. It brings out all the two extremes. One is fear, and the other one is love. And that's also very, very beautiful, because my, my daughter, she works, uh, she's a yoga teacher. She had, to, she had to close all her classes, and she also works for the food banks. She supplied the food banks, and the other day she came home crying. She said 15 of the 16 food banks have been closed because they were run by old people. Okay, and and uh, so the the poorest people don't have any food, and the other thing that happened: the people who were living in total fear, they uh, they raided the supermarkets without any consideration that there were other people who couldn't get to the supermarket and running out of stuff, and some of these people stole food from the food banks. You know, so that is how extreme the fear factor behaves and, and expresses itself. And now, of course, in order to counterbalance this, for example, on, on British television, there was a nurse who had just came back from a 40-hour shift. She tried to get to the supermarket to buy some food, and there was no food for her after a 40-hour shift. And they, she did a, a video, she cried, she said, stop it, stop it, stop it. I'm here to help you, to save your life, and you're taking the food out of my mouth. Stop it, you know. And these sort of things, they've got an inc incredible power. 
So what we are going through, Tom, is, is exactly what you said. We're going through a growing up process. And it's an intensive learning process. And it's beautiful. I couldn't have thought of any better way of implementing this. And it is, you know, if we were left to our own devices and said, okay, we all know climate change is happening, okay, maybe in 10, maybe in 20 years. In the meantime, let's just carry on, go on these cruises, pumping sort of our our sewage into the ocean, which kills millions of fish. We don't care. As long as we have fun, we, we, we anchor our cruise ship outside the lagoon in Venice, pollute the whole city, you know, so that no fish can be seen for, for at least six months. You know, let's just have fun, no matter what the cost. Suddenly we realize if we take the cruise ship away from the, which is anchored outside the lagoon, we can see fish. The water is clear. Now, these sort of information we haven't had before. It suddenly is going to filter through. So let us stay another six, let us stay another uh, 12 months incarcerated in within ourselves so we can do a little bit of meditation and reflection and then come out, like my daughter just did. She just talked to her friend. They were all online, just like we we are now and they said let's have a party and suddenly there were 13 people on zoom and the party lasted for about four or five hours and they had an incredible time not only that but they came up with lots of ideas of what they're doing since since the party happened martina uh, my daughter set up a an online uh, course for people um, doing yoga, and she already has bookings, people booking yoga classes with her from their home. And she does individual classes. If anything, her, her uh, business model seems to get be getting much better than it was before. Now, this pool of creativity, we will never have looked at. And we are a very creative social species. The first, the most important thing is we want to get together. We want to get over it. But the other beautiful thing is we also want to help each other. We want to work as a collective. And our, our species is successful because we have always been able to work as a collective. And that's the thing which we have now been shown. We are all in the same boat. We are all being sick. We've got to get out of it. We are all isolated. The reset button has been pushed by the larger consciousness system to to make us uh, to wake us up. Okay, we may not have the comfort afterwards we had before, but we may have a much greater comfort, which is coming from within. And that's all I, I, I would like to add to the discussion, really. Yes, well, I agree with all of that. You know, there's the saying that uh, I learned early in, in um, my work out at Monroe's, and that is that if you look at all the things that happen to you in your life, you will generally come to the conclusion that we get what we need and deserve when we need it and as we deserve it. And I think that happens individually as well as collectively. You know, Jürgen, you said that so beautifully. I see Marla nodding. I see everyone nodding. I think we all agree that was just beautifully said. Well done. 
Um, literally, it is a wake-up world. World, It's a wake-up call to you. Please listen. Please pay attention. Uh, Dr. D, thank you for joining us today. Um, would you like to comment on what you've heard so far? Yes. Thank you. Uh, I was listening to Tom, and I, this uh, opportunity, it has been an opportunity. My, I saw my wife uh, teaches high school, and, and last week she started teaching 17 students in our kitchen for the video camera through Zoom, and I was amazed at that. And and now I think I think what's going to happen in my practice now, I'm going to be talking to my patients by not Zoom or one of these uh, these methods. And what it does, it allows me to, to see them and talk to them so they don't have to come to the office. And, and you know, when we in Boston, where I live, there's big snowstorms and they truck into the office and see me. And now I can be online and it's kinder to see them online than on a phone or out you know, in the office. So that's going to, I can see that's going to change. But I also have to talk about fear. I was, I haven't been very fearful. But I was fearful this weekend when I went to the post office to send some packages to my kids and they were six feet apart waiting in line. And it was scary. Everybody had these fearful looks on their face. Does the person in front of me have the virus? Does the person behind me have the virus? I mean, it was palpable. And it really scared me to think that that degree of fear, I could feel it in the room. I wanted to leave. So I think, Tom, you hit the both. It's an opportunity. And it's a way to um, identify fear and maybe uh, avoid it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. To, to um, Tom, I don't know if you want to comment on that or if we should go now to maybe Jim. Do you have anything that you would like to add, Jim? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much uh, for the opportunity. I really like uh, what, what everybody's been saying so far about looking at the positive side of things and uh, trying to avoid fear. Um, I, I work, my day job is in the high-tech industry, and um, kind of my role is a, a, a transformation specialist. So I try to help uh, companies move to a more, you know, egalitarian model, a more empowering model for their uh, their employees. And some of the comments about how things have changed here, um, it just happened so, so quickly, and it has been kind of amazing. So, for example, uh, we had a WebEx which is similar to Zoom, uh, a WebEx just the other day uh, with probably 40, 50 people on it, and everybody had a drink, and it was just to kind of connect and uh, have a virtual happy hour. So, you know, everyone was sharing their drinks, was, you know, similar to uh, what uh, somebody was saying before. And it, it made me realize that there's a lot that we can do in this environment, you know, for the high-tech industry, but the problem, I think, is the lack of connection. You know, people crave that connection with other people, and they're still not quite getting it working remotely. Um, when I work with managers, we talk about something called X theory, Y theory. And X theory is the idea. I could actually have these mixed up, but one of them, I think it's X theory, is the idea that if you basically um, let things happen, People will take advantage of the system. They will not work hard. They will play. They won't be productive and so forth. Whereas the why theory is that if you let the system go or you, you put the right environment in place, people will naturally be creative, be 
um, integrative and be productive. And managers tend to be more on the X theory side of things. And that's why they put in place these, you know, trust, but verify mechanisms, why they like people, you know, in the office and so forth. So to the extent that this is creating an environment that proves that productivity can be uh, productive, you know, people can be productive in a virtual environment. That's a good thing, but it does seem to take away that connection that helps people collaborate, helps them, um, you know, integrate ideas, brainstorm with each other. It's, it's definitely harder to do in a, in a remote uh, situation. I also concur with uh, what Dr. D said about the panic mentality. I feel it myself. I go to stores sometimes and I'm, I'm just buying what I need for the next week, like I always do. And I'll be standing there in line and I'll see people with, you know, a cart full of toilet paper or water. And I start feeling, oh, my God, should I go and, you know, grab some more or something like that? And I just I have to suppress that. I think it's natural um, human instinct to, you know, as Tom was saying, to kind of uh, have that, you know, inward thinking of protecting yourself and not think in the global consciousness. So um, we're, we're forced to suppress this now. And. Um, that I think it can also be a, a pretty good thing. Um, what else? Uh, you know, I, I think I look at our whole society and the whole system is sort of a, like a complex adaptive system. And the adaptive part is feedback mechanisms. We don't learn from doing the same thing the same way over and over. We don't, we don't change. Sometimes you need to have a disruptive force in order for us to change the way we do things, the way we feel about people, the way we feel about borders between countries and so forth. And this is one of those things. So I think we've got definitely a short term period of fear. Um, I love what this panel is saying about the positive side of things, because that's not out there. That's not out there in the press. And if there was a way to, I mean, I'll certainly share things with my colleagues and friends, but you know, if there's a way to get a, a more, uh, I don't know, integrative message out in the, in this time, it will help people feel better. It'll help them um, remove the panic mentality that uh, comes naturally to them. I would make one comment to uh, to what Jim said, and and that is, you are correct that the you know the Zoom experience isn't the same experience as a face to face experience. There's a there's a difference between those two. And people will crave that, that face to face, body to body experience as a, as a better, fuller, more satisfying kind of connection. But I think that we can, that the biggest problem there isn't one of the lack of, of Zoom to provide the interaction necessary. I think it's just, we're not used to it. That we don't do enough of it. I think we'll find out that once people get used to that digital connection, They'll find that it's at least an 80, if not 90 or 95 percent solution and that you can have fun with people and it can be personal and it can be all the same things. It is eyeball to eyeball very closely, not quite, but very closely. And I think the more we use that digital, the the less difference there's going to be between the face to face and the zoom to zoom. I think that that gap that we have now is more perception than it actually is fact. And if we used it a lot, I think that perception would would maybe be that it was uh, uh, 
almost just as good. It isn't now, but I think it would be. You know, it used to be the same thing with the telephone. You know, you calling somebody and having a disembodied conversation on the telephone was kind of thought as impersonal. You'd really rather talk to the person. But now talking to people on the phone is so common that the idea that you'd go someplace to talk to somebody when you could call them on the phone, you'd much rather call them on the phone, even though the phone doesn't give you the video data you know, the facial expressions and the reaction data that a, that a Zoom call or a, a you know, a, 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 as you were saying, what is it? Uh, uh, something X was your WebEx. Yeah. Yeah, WebEx as WebEx will do or Skype or, or Zoom, the rest of them. But yeah, I think in time we'll get over that and we'll find that digital is almost as good and in many cases even better than being there as far as just the communication goes and as far as the resources required to be there and come back and the pollution and the, and the car traffic and the rest of it, well, it's hugely more, efe- more efficient than actually being there. But Glad you could join with us, Jim. Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. Uh, just one quick follow-up, uh, and then I'll turn it back over to Keith. Um, you know, I've, I've always noticed what I've called the evening effect in our uh, evolution, if you will. Uh, there have been times that during the Industrial Revolution, people, you know, feared the end of the world. You know, it was going to run amok. Uh, during the 1940s, we, or in 1950s, we had the Cold War and we feared nuclear Armageddon. And it was like, it felt like it was inevitable. It was, you know, two minutes to midnight kind of thing. And, you know, how can we possibly get out of this? In the 70s, it was overpopulation. Now it's global warming. And there always seemed to be something that happens that whether it's, you know, the end of the Cold War or, you know, uh, you know, different policies on, uh, you know, number of children or whatever, you know, the, the way the way people think, um, there always seems to be something that, that kind of changes it's like a thermostat, you know, uh, or the way forest, forest fires clear out trees for new trees to grow. Um, it feels like this virus is one of those kinds of things. It's something that is, you know, a thermostat effect. It's, it's an evening effect. It's causing us to maybe move in the different direction from the one that was kind of negative that we were heading in. Um, and I think it's similar to what Jurgen was talking about, um, you know, I, I, I feel that being one of the the positive outcomes of this situation. Yes, I, I would agree with that. One of, one of the things that we are, you know, when you hear about it in management, it's called management by crisis. But we as individuals tend to manage our lives by crisis. And if we don't have a crisis, then everything just keeps on keeping on because there's no re- reason to change anything until we get to a crisis. So I think that's unfortunately uh, just the way we are because we're very self-centered. We want to just keep doing what feels good to us until what feels good to us creates a crisis. And when it creates a crisis enough that it affects us, then we're looking for change. But until it affects us, well, just let's keep on keeping on. Not my problem. It's somebody else's problem. So I think that's just the nature of being self-centered is that you tend to manage your life by the crisis. And until there's a crisis, you really don't have any interest in changing anything. 
And now if we can get a little bigger viewpoint, you know, a viewpoint that goes a little further than that by seeing ourselves as global citizens and interactive with each other and we all have to breathe the same air and we all have to share the same planet. I'm hoping that uh, this is kind of a something that's a kick in the pants to get us started at least thinking bigger thoughts. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Tom, is it not important for humans to have that physical interaction as well, though? That's, that is important, right? Well, it is important, but not so much important, say, in business, in education, in, in many of the interactions, it's not that important. It is important if it's a relationship with your significant other. You know, it's it's hard to have a have a family, you know, if you always are distant from, you know, from your husband or your wife. So, yes, you need that physical contact. But there's many things that we do socially that it really isn't that important. And a lot of our a lot of our social drivers. You know, really need to be rethought. You know, they're not necessarily as important as they as they seem to us. So a lot of business and a lot of education doesn't need body to body. It just needs a, a way to transfer information and interact. And we can do that digitally. But yes, our, our love life and, you know, raising our children and all of that, we don't want to, you know, we don't raise our kids digitally. You know, we want to not have a, a monitor that we can look and see what they're doing in their bedroom, you know, and talk to them over the speaker. We want to, you know, deal with them face to face, but that's not the problem. The problem is the, you know, the 5,000 people or the 10,000 people that all get shoulder to shoulder with each other, you know, for five or six hours, you know, at the football game or, you know, standing in line at the airport waiting to be tested to see if they have a virus, you know, so you got, what was it, 6,000 people all in a line, you know, at the airport standing right next to each other to get tested for a virus. You know, how how counterproductive can that be? Definitely need to start thinking and acting differently. Uh, I'd now like to bring in Sylvia, good friend of yours, Tom, good friend of ours. Uh, she has a really nice comment that she'd like to make, a very important comment. Um, uh, thanks, Keith. Um, so I have two things, actually. Sorry, I just want to sneak in one other one before. Um, and one of the comments was about people not thinking in the bigger picture. And earlier this week, I uh, posted on Facebook um, inviting people to make comments about what they think in, in individually or collectively we might be learning from this experience. And it was such a popular <laughs> post. Everybody commented and the, the, the positive, interesting, thoughtful comments people were making. So, um, I was, I was, um, pleased to see that a lot of people do seem to be seeing it and operating at least at two levels. I mean, there's certainly they're operating in fear about their personal circumstances, but I do think there seems to be at least somewhat of an awareness that there's a larger lesson here. So I just wanted to offer that up because I thought that was interesting. In fact, I might codify these and send these around in some way. Um, but then uh, the comment that, that I wanted to make was, uh, you know, I lo also loved hearing Jurgen's perspective. That was that was really helpful. Um, but the, the, the bit that's um, sort of uh, 
distressing me in terms of thinking about this as a set of lessons is I do most of my work in uh, schools uh, with under-resourced kids. And um, what I see so profoundly is that this and what the, the part that makes me fear the feel the most fearful is how the vulnerable populations in our communities are the ones that are suffering and will suffer the most. Um, and, you know, there is some small part of me that thinks, yes, there's huge value in, you know, uh, people in our country recognizing that as one of the wealthiest nations, probably 40 percent of our, the nation's children don't have enough food if they don't go to school. Um, and I don't, I think a lot of people weren't aware of that until this crisis hit. But, um, that being what it is, uh, it's still, I see that, you know, the kids in the community that's a 25 minute drive from me, uh, where the, the people are the most poor, um, and the most exposed, um, are absolutely suffering the most. They don't have second homes in Vermont. They can go a whole way in. Um, they need their daily jobs. They've, been laid off in masses. The children need to go to school to get food and have a safe place to be, etc. So anyway, uh, oh, and <laughs> I just spoke to a friend of mine who's a um, lawyer, and you know he's working for the company where they're raising a billion dollars next week uh, in terms so that every people can profit on market volatility. So that contrast of, you know, we're still here with this same, this virus is, is, is exacerbating that story of, um, you know, who's, who's vulnerable and who's suffering. Um, anyway, that's, I'd love to okay. hear any thoughts on that. Okay. Well, you know, the the disadvantaged, the people that are at the bottom end of the social structure, they are always going to suffer more and have more you know difficulty dealing with any situation than anybody else. So those vulnerable people are going to be hurt more than others because they live in more crowded conditions than others. They are, like you say, hand to mouth. In their, in their economics more so than others. Many of the kids are dependent on going to school to get something to eat than others. So that sector is always going to suffer the most. It's just the way it is. And that's the component of love that is sad. Love is not always a joyous, you know, happy thing. Love has a sad component to it. And when I say that's the way it is, it's not like that condones it and says it's all right. It just means that that's going to be the way it is. The most vulnerable are going to be the most hurt. And hopefully people like you will go, you know, figure out ways to help them and get them by. And, and there's, you know, there's aid in different places. And those people need to be thought of and they need to be helped. But those are the people that are the least thought of. And they are the people that is hardest to get the help to because nobody so much cares about those people because they're at the bottom of the barrel and nobody wants to think a lot about them or take responsibility for them. It's just sad. And you have to look at it and realize that it's the way the world works. It's sad. You know, growth happens. Growth is always, is always dramatic growth is always something that crunches you know there's always dislocation and and disturbance and unbalance when you go through growth periods 
and the people who end up getting hurt the most are the ones that are the neediest. And that's sad, but it is the way life is. And one just, you know, one, you know, it's not that you have to learn to like it. You'll never learn to like it. But it is the way the world works. And one has to accept that it's like that and do the best we can to help those people. They are important. They deserve our help. And I think the more we grow up, the more we'll be able to see that. And the more we see that, the less of those disadvantaged people there will be. You know, we don't need all those disadvantaged people. We have enough resources. They don't have to be that disadvantaged, but we choose not to spend those resources that way. That's until we change, that won't change. You know, we have to grow up. So in the long run, all this growing up that we're doing is going to benefit those people, but it's going to be the long run. In the short run, they're going to be the ones that are ground up the worst. They will have the worst problems with the disease and they will have the fewest, you know, the, the, the less accessibility to healthcare that they need. But in the long run, any kind of growth we make will end up helping them or their children, maybe their grandchildren. Who knows? We always hope that we can solve that problem with time. Adam, I think you have a quick comment before I bring Marla in. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> I just wanted to say a quote that uh, I heard during this event. It was about um, being proud, looking back at the great pandemic of 2020 and being proud of your actions and how you handled yourself and how you, uh, what you did and who you were. And uh, I'd just like to share that with everyone of that, that kind of idea of taking this opportunity to step up to the plate and um, contribute maybe more than you have, or instead of uh, indulging in things you, you know, you shouldn't be maybe make the better choices now. And uh, that way, when you look back on it, you can say, wow, you know, not only was that a great period of growth for the world, but also for myself. And um, that was all I wanted to share. And I really appreciated everybody's comments so far. It's been great to hang out with people and everyone has a positive outlook. You know, you can have an actual conversation about this without uh, diving into, you know, worrying about where you're going to get your next meal, something like that. So uh, great to see everyone. And that's all I have to say. Well, and, and that's, that's exactly what we've been talking about, Adam, is the fact that you can do this with anyone on any subject. My neighbor wanted to invite people over for a card game. They ended up having a poker night on Zoom because it was, it was brilliant. They could interact. They, they, they still did exactly the same thing they would do in person, but they could do it, and they could do it with people wherever they were, which is, which is fantastic. Okay, Marla, you've been waiting patiently. You're always smiling, always happy looking there, but there must be a lot going on in your mind right now. <laughs> well, there's a lot of joy listening to all of you, and I just want to thank you for being a part of this today. Tom, I'm looking at a language here. Um, you know, I'm present on social media, but I have a lot of clients all over the world. There's a there's something that I want to um, deal with as far as a little hiccup I always hear. And it is people are constantly disappointed disappointed in and their expectations of how other people should be acting. 
And, you know, we, we know here in this conversation that accepting people as they are and where they are and that they're doing the very best they can, even when they're not doing the best they can, even when they know they're hurting other people, they're doing the best they can. But this hiccup of, I'd like to find a way to bridge in a language, helping people understand this dynamic of really trying to accept people the way that they are instead of being constantly disappointed because they're expecting people to be a certain way. Yeah. Okay. The the problem there is that you, know, you mentioned you, you look at people and you say, well, they're doing the best they can, but not really, you know, they're really <laughs> doing awful stuff. You say, well, that is, that is your judgment of what they should be doing. So they're not doing what you think they should be doing. They could be doing a whole lot more that they're not doing. So that's, that's you from your perspective. They're, they're failing. They're not cooperating. So they're, they're kind of wrongheaded. They're, they're, they're part of the problem, not part of the solution. From their perspective, they're doing what they feel like they need to do. Yeah. That's just where they are. You know, most of us humans are very self-centered. It's just the way we are. So you see somebody who's just doing something really self-centered and you think, well, they could be doing better. Somebody needs to go give them a good slap and tell them to straighten up, but that won't help. That will just make it worse. They are self-centered and for a very self-centered person, they're just doing what a self-centered person does. And in their own minds, they're just doing what they have to do when they have to do it. And in their mind, they don't have other choices because other isn't that important to them. What's important is themselves and, you know, their family and their loved ones and their house and their dog. You know, their stuff is important to them, but other people's not so much. So you have to just accept people the way they are. All right, we're all here trying to grow up. Some people have succeeded more of that than others. And the people who we look at and judge them as acting badly, well, that's our judgment. You know, we'd like them to be less self-centered, but they aren't. They are just who they are. And if we interact with them with that attitude that they could be doing better and that they're jerks and that they're part of the problem, and if we 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 interact with them with that negative attitude, it will just make them worse, not make them better. If we interact with them, just understanding that they are who they are, whatever that is, they're extremely self-centered, but that's the way they are, and realize that they're just making the choices that they feel they have to make, then we can interact with them in a way that actually can help them grow up because we're not in, interacting with them in a judgmental way. We're not coming into them saying you're wrong and need to change. And here's how you need to change. That's very, that's arrogance on our part. So the point is you just have to accept people that they are the way they are and then care for them and have some, some, uh, compassion for them because people who are very self-centered are people who are not very happy. There are people who are struggling. There are people who are who cannot find peace. There are people who cannot find satisfaction. They're constantly in fear. They're constantly, you know, trying to keep their head above water. And generally 
not being very successful with it. They don't feel good about themselves. You know, you have that kind of a person. So to come in with, to them negatively, just mm-hmm. like throwing gasoline on that fire, you know, it's not going to help put the fire out. It's going to make it worse. So right. you, you have some compassion for them and try to interact with them in a way that does not trip their buttons, does not, you know, resonate with their fears. And that means there may not be much you can do to interact with them. You know, you may just need to leave them alone. They may be somebody that's, you know, that you just can't interact with very successfully. And that means you then just don't interact with them. But don't look at them and think, oh, what a jerk. You know, they're not doing it right. They could do so much more. That's an arrogant attitude that judges other people. You just have to look at them and say, wow, poor person. I can tell just by looking at them, they're very unhappy, don't like themselves. They live in a miserable world. And there isn't anything I can do to fix that. Or maybe you can. Maybe you can just go up and, and be nice to them. And that may be such a a, a major event in their life that uh, it may actually help them grow up a little bit. Well, that's what I'm finding out out here. I mean, I live in Los Angeles and the chaos that's happening is actually the only thing in person that I have watched is people being able to be grateful thanking them when we go into the stores thanking all of the clerks i mean these these are, these are people that i've been with since you know the late 80s using their names talking to them thanking them for what they're doing that's that's the only bridge that i see in person right now in the chaos out here and so i really appreciate you wanting to share that with us especially in dialogue over Facebook, in, in any kind of dialogue where we're typing, you know, instead of actually speaking, because I think that these Zooms, which some of us have been a part of, but I think that the Zoom is one of the most important ways that we can to bridge this. So thank you. Okay. Well, we, do need to, we do need to thank people, but we need to thank them from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> We need not to give them, not to shake their hand and give them a hug. We need, yeah, we we need to thank them from a distance. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Greg, I believe that you want to go back to something that Jurgen was talking about. The floor is yours. Uh, yeah, when Jurgen was speaking, uh, he brought up this concept that the virus is not a random occurrence, but an intelligent response uh, by the LCS to, you know, some of our activities and guiding us towards a different path. Uh, that really helps me to hear something like that, because if it is a random occurrence, then there is still a lot of positive we can do, but there's still an element of, you know, that we don't have control, that, that just random things can happen. But if uh, I find something beautiful in the concept that even something that appears so negative is a uh, chosen intelligent um, action by the the one consciousness or LCS. So I'd like to hear more about that, Tom, maybe if you have uh, some opinions on that or you're going to, if you have some elaboration or anyone else. Okay. I can say a little about that. You know, I tend to, to um, use the metaphor that says that, you know, we create our own reality in many ways. And one of the ways we create our own reality is with our intents and for instance, if you are a very, uh, let's say, uh, aggressive person, 
or a very uh, me first kind of person, you will create attitudes in the people around you that will attempt to correct that. People will start giving you pushback. And every time you walk up to a conversation, people will turn around and walk away. And you will start getting these corrective things, you know, will come back at you just naturally. So it's not so much in my mind that there is a system that says, ah, what these people need now is a good plague. If they had a good plague, that would really be a good thing, as it is that just the natural way the system works is that we create that impetus, that reaction that helps us deal with our problem. So, and if you think about that, any particular problem that someone might have as far as their interaction with other people, the, that exercise of that problem will create a result in other people that basically is the correction for them. So if you constantly talk to people and you make them angry, well, your correction is that you can't have a civil conversation with anybody. You know, you're always talking to angry people. That's what you're stuck with. And until you learn how to grow up, you're just going to just talk with angry people. So I think it's natural. I'm not, you know, from the other side of it, Jürgen's metaphor is that the system understands our needs, where we are, where we need to grow, and it gives us this device. I just find that is a different metaphor for the exact same thing. I think all that happens in a natural in the natural way. It's something that, uh, so why do we get that, you know, why do we get that virus? Well, it's because we treat animals abominably and we put them into little tiny spaces and we crowd a whole bunch of people into that little space too. And we don't observe any kind of public health standards or any time, any sort of caring for the people or the animals. They're all crammed into little spaces where, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, defecation and, and body, uh, excrements are all kind of there that you can't get rid of them fast enough. So it's just a very unhealthy place. Well, when we do that, we get a correction. You see, the correction is just natural. It comes out of that. What you get when you create that situation is a virus that, you know, that can kill people. People created it. People create the virus that can kill them. So our life, our whole reality, our whole virtual reality, it, you know, again, it's, it's the same. You get what you need and deserve. And everybody kind of gets what you need and deserve. And that's true individually as well as collectively. And what we needed and deserved here with this virus is we needed to, you know, get our act together and, and stop doing the things that create those kinds of viruses stop having the attitudes and it's not just change the attitudes of the people in china who have that live animal market in such terrible uh uh sanitary conditions or i should say unsanitary conditions it's that we want to stop the attitudes that lets that happen because a similar thing happens a million other places in the world it's just not to the extent that it creates a a world problem so I see it as a natural effect of the nature of our reality is that we create, you know, the things we need. And if you want to term that, if you want to explain that as the larger consciousness system, you know, uh, 
gives it to us because we need it and it's what what's good for us. I see that as the same thing. It's just a different metaphor for the for the same thing. Yes, there is a system. Yes, it is aware and conscious. Yes, it does try to help us evolve. And yes, it could just decide that this was a very good thing, just what we need at this time. And we were just ready for it. We were just at a point where people might change because of it. Then it wouldn't have any compunctions at all about creating this little event for us. But in either case, I don't know that it matters. And again, I think it's just two different ways of looking at the same event. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, the experience is that we're not separated, you know, that we are part of one immense consciousness system. We only believe we are separated from it because we are pursuing our own individual agenda but there's an overriding aspect to the system which binds us all together. And if we uh, violate the system in some way, which is selfish, then another part of the system will respond to it. And I find that it's just the way nature works. You could call it nature, or you could call it the larger consciousness system, but it is a system which has its own mechanics which responds in a way which is helping evolution, as you said, you know, helping us to grow up. And that's that's very much how I see it. But also, what you mentioned, there is a, an aspect of love built into the system, which drives the evolution forward. And the aspect of fear, which takes it into the opposite direction. And so, in a way, we will become more aware of this aspect of love which drives us forward and also takes away the fear because we can only we can only have one emotion at one time and we can decide do we want to have fear or do we want to have love when we have love we can't have any fear because they rule each other out so all the time while we're in this predicament we have got to make decisions every every moment and look at and err on the side of love, of compassion, rather than err on the side of fear and negativity. And that, I think, is a, is a challenge. You know, throughout this crisis, we've got to uh, see where our bias is and decide, you know, which way to go. Yeah, uh, Jürgen, I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, I learned something practical. I've always, it's always stuck in my head, um, from a book that I read. Uh, I know Tom's familiar with this one, uh, is Unified Reality Theory by Stephen Kaufman. And in it, he talks about, you know, why is it that if we are all part of this global consciousness system, we're all really connected. We're part of this big, uh, you know, sea of consciousness. Why do we feel so individuated? And he, he talks about how we do it to ourselves when we it's sort of like a um, a positive feedback loop when you start thinking of yourself as separate it exacerbates itself so now i start thinking i need to you know compete with others for resources and when i start doing that i start feeling more individuated and so then i compete more for resources and so forth and he said um this is the practical part of it is when you're walking down the street when you're looking at other people do you tend to say, oh, look at that person in, in a way that is separating? You know, they're different or they're, um, you know, 
glad, glad I'm not in their shoes or something like that. That's the, the thing that you want to avoid. You want to look and, and try to find in, in everybody you look at the commonality that you have with that person. And that helps bring you into a more integrative mindset. And, and I always really like that. It's a very practical thing that you can do day by day. Um, uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of offer that up as a, as a way to keep a healthier mental attitude. Sorry, guys, I was miles away there. I was just um, thinking about where my sanitizer was. Vanessa, um, you're, you're there. You're smiling as well. So uh, let's come to you next. Okay, great. Um, and thank you, Jim, for that last comment. I really like that because that helps us take the big picture perspective and apply it into our daily life. So um, thank you for that tip. Um, so my comment was on conspiracy theories because since <laughs> this has happened, I've really been trying to figure out what's the meaning of all this. Why, why is this happening? And then that led me down the rabbit hole of looking at these different conspiracy theories. And I was conversing with a friend yesterday and he said that oftentimes when people are so uncertain, they don't know what's going on. They grasp onto any idea so that they feel like they have some control, some certainty. So they grasp onto a conspiracy theory or even <laughs> Even the thought that, oh, this is all happening to teach us something like, you know, a divine, a divine force has created this so that we can learn and we can grow up. But I think it, it helps us, Tom, what you always say is to live gracefully with uncertainty. And it kind of comes back to that is ultimately we don't know why this is happening. We have to be okay with that and then just do whatever we can to, to stay positive and to, and to learn and grow from this experience. Um, Curious to hear, Tom, what your thoughts are on that, on a purpose behind this all. Yeah. Well, you're right, Vanessa. The, you know, the way that we should live our life is that stuff happens and we get to deal with it. You know, it's just that simple and we shouldn't judge or try to, uh, worry too much about exactly why the stuff happens. That's really not all that important. I mean, it's good to theorize and it's good, you know, to help people see big pictures and so on. But you're talking about interactions with people on the street and so on. You're in a real practical zone is the way you're thinking of this. So in that practical zone of dealing with things, I'd say you just don't worry too much about why it happens. Why me is not a good question. A good question is, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to respond to it? And that's really where we need to be. So this idea about living gracefully with uncertainty is just a way of approaching life. Most of what happens in life, you will have no idea what, where that, where that came from. You know, you can't, you know, you, you might read news and, and very carefully try to stay up with things, but it's impossible these days to set, to separate fact from propaganda. You know, uh, you just don't know what mm-hmm. is going on or why it's going on. And there's really no way to know. You know, you can't go to the site of whatever it is that's going on and then make your own judgment because you just can't be everywhere, every place. So you just have to let things be the way they are. You have to be always skeptical of everything. And you have to live with a lot of uncertainty where the rub is, is that people who are fearful, one of the things they're fearful of is uncertainty. 
Because without certainty, they're not in control. And if you're fearful, you have a need to be in control. So when you're in control, you want to know, well, how did that happen? And why did it happen? And who did that? And when you really, really need to know, then as your friend said, you'll grasp any kind of belief that comes along that gives you that answer because you really need to know. See, so it takes courage to live with uncertainty. You have to have the courage just to let things be and just deal with things as as they happen. All right, this has happened. And now what am I going to do about it? What's my... You know, what's my best reaction? What's my reaction that's positive and caring and not just about me and what's good for me, but what's my reaction about what's the best thing to do here? And and how will other people be affected by my choices? And if you just do that and not really worry or concern yourself with why did this happen to me, but concern yourself with what are you going to do about it? then we'd all be better off. So the conspiracy theories basically are birthed from people who are fearful, who want to have somebody to blame other than themselves, don't want to take personal responsibility for being a part of anything, you see. So they have they come up with a conspiracy theory that blames it all on somebody else, and it's simple and uh, you don't have to think too hard to follow the, you know, the, the lines, you know, the evil people who are in charge of everything do it. So it's a, it's just a way to kind of distance yourself from the things you don't like, make yourself feel better, but it's only fearful people make up the stuff and only fearful people spread it. So it's the fearful people scaring each other. And the problem is that more and more people get frightened as they kind of lose their their courage and their sense of of uh, balance when things go wrong, you know, and, and things are uncertain. Yeah. yeah. A fear of uncertainty is one of the big fears. That the, basically, the fear of death is a fear of uncertainty. So it takes courage to just live your life and say, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, you know, I don't know why it's going to happen, but whatever happens, whether it's fun or whether it's really, really hard and miserable and, and, and sad, I'll deal with it and I'll deal with it the best I can with the viewpoint of how does my dealing with it affect others and try to lower entropy as much as possible. And if that's the way you approach the practical everyday things in your life, then you'll grow up and do well. It's a very good point, actually. Uh, the uh, uncertainty, you know, is particularly useful if you take the position of uncertainty. If you, let's say, if you are faced with reality, to take the position of reality and not separate yourself from the reality. Identify yourself as a reality and become one with it. Then the fear element sort of disappears because you can just say yes. That's me. That's reality. Okay. And that's how I find you can overcome most fearful aspects by simply doing the first step to accepting it and not just accepting it, but agreeing to the fact that you are the reality. It's you. You are, you are, you know, the the center point of it. Mm -hmm. That's anyway, that's the way I look at it sometimes. 
Yeah, I might add, Vanessa, that the fear is sometimes looked at the wrong way. You know, being being fearless does not mean being stupid. So, you know, people who say, um, you know, like they're fearful about getting this virus. They don't know. They're uncertain. Well, I get this virus. Can I go out and buy some groceries? And if I do, well, I get the virus. And uh, if somebody could tell them, well, if you go out this time, you won't get it. But if you go out, you know, this time, you will get it and could give them certainty, they'd feel so much better if they could believe that answer that they were told. So it's the uncertainty is what upsets them. And and we we tend to, you know, and even the people who are trying to fix the situation, we tend to manipulate people to do what we think is best using fear. So even those people who are trying to get the word out about the virus, I think they have a bit of a tendency to use fear to manipulate people to do what they, you know, want them to do. So they want them to stay home. They want them to, uh, you know, wear a mask. If they get sick and go out in public, they should wear a mask. And they've got all these things. And the idea that if you frighten them enough, they'll be more likely to do it. And if you don't frighten them, they'll just ignore you and go about their life. And, you know, that is not a good idea. You don't educate people by frightening them. You have to educate people by giving them information. And yes, if you want people to stay home, you can frighten them into staying home, but they don't learn anything that way. They stay home, they're frightened, and they don't come out of it the other side a better person. All you've done is manipulated them and you've taken away basically their opportunity to evolve from it because you're not going to evolve from a place of fear. So even if you can make people stay home by scaring them, that's not the right way to approach it. You need to give them information. You need to tell them if you don't stay home, here's what's going to happen. You're an individual. And if you have the flu and if you get one other person or couple of other people to have it because you gave it to them and they give it to others and they give it to others and so on. It spreads out. And, and eventually one of the people in that chain goes into an old folks home and makes somebody sick and, and 50 people die. Well, those people wouldn't have died if you hadn't gone out and given that flu to that person who gave it to the person. So you're in this chain. And if you let people see that they are responsible for what happens in this society. And just because they don't walk into the old folks home themselves, they're still in that chain of responsibility that those old folks would still be alive today if that one person didn't infect that other person, you see? So we have to teach people to take responsibility for what they do and see that it's not just about them. And we can do that. I mean, we've done that successfully Lots of times, and we haven't used fear. I remember back in the 50s when the thing to do when you were driving your car and you had some trash that you didn't want, you threw it out the window. And there was all this trash, you know, driving your car around is like driving in a big garbage can. Like we all lived in a big garbage can because there was garbage everywhere. And a big, uh, uh, a big deal was made of littering. Fines were put up for littering. And it was mostly educational. It wasn't that people were afraid of being fined. 
We've spent probably a billion dollars in this country just trying to teach people that littering is not a good thing. It's not, you know, it's, it's not being a good citizen. It's you need to take personal responsibility and it worked. And we did, you know, we did a similar thing with smoking and we dropped the number of people smoking less than half over that time where we just ran a lot of ads. So you can use public education to get people to do things. You don't tell people to quit smoking because you're showing pictures of, of lungs taken out of, out of, uh, you know, cadavers who have died from lung disease. Frightening people doesn't work. It just makes them feel bad, it makes them a little more neurotic and, and a little more, uh, um, unlikely to grow up. So I think that was part of our problem. Even the people who were on the right side of this issue trying to help tended to use fear a little bit, not too heavy handed, but a little bit to manipulate people into doing what they thought they should do. Well, that isn't really so helpful. They really needed to get together and start educating people on why you need to do these things and why it's important. And if they had really pushed on that, then more people will grow up from this experience than will grow up from it if the reason they stay inside is because they're afraid and they've been frightened into doing it. Those people won't learn much at all. The people who will learn are the people who see their own responsibility to the rest of the world and that's why they stay in, you see? So often people will say, well, fear is the answer. Sometimes fear is a good thing. Look, all those people are only staying home because they're afraid. Well, no, they're staying home because they're intelligent and they see that not staying home is not a good thing to do and irresponsible. That's why they need to stay home, not because they're afraid. So we have a lot of fear mongering going on with the hopes of scaring people into doing the right thing. It's just not helpful. So it's, you know, fear is always a problem. Fear is never the solution to anything good. You know, David Holmes posted a good question on MBT Global Family Facebook group the other day, which generated lots of comments very quickly. He asked, what does Tom say about viruses in a simulation? Is it a reflection of our collective consciousness or is it simply the rule set that does them? Well, I'd say it's just simply the rule set. We have viruses because viruses are possible. You know, under the rule set, a virus can exist just like an amoeba can exist or a bacteria can exist. Matter of fact, that's where we all started, right? As bacteria, basically one celled things, you know, in the primordial ooze. That's where life started. So that's where we came from. And they just exist because the rule set allows them to. Now, that means that the system can use them. Like uh, Jürgen said, you know, it can always do that. But mostly the system doesn't butt in so much. We are a kind of a self, a self-writing system, you know, just like a boat. If you take a boat and you push it sideways, push it over and then let it go, it'll pop back up again because the boat wants to be upright unless you turn it all the way over. Then it stays all the way over. But, uh, you know, the boat has a heavy keel, which means the keel goes down and the boat comes up. So it's self-writing. And our system is like that. When we do bad things, 
we create bad things and then we have to live with those bad things, which is the lesson for us not to do bad things because we end up having to live with them. So it's a self-writing system for the most part. Viruses exist because they can. Right, Tom, thank you for clearing that up for, for me and for, for David. Uh, Frank, we're going to come to you next. You have a uh, couple of good questions, I believe. Yeah, thanks, Keith. Hi, Tom, and hi, everyone. So I really love the discussion so far and definitely that it's so positive, which is, I think, really badly needed. And um, having said that, I wonder, though whether we are really going to learn as much from this crisis because we've also had the financial crisis not too long ago and I wonder how much we learned uh, from that and whether, you know, when the worst was over, we didn't just all get back into the normal rhythm. And so is there a risk that the, I think we have lots of opportunity now and all the examples that were mentioned, how people become creative in helping each other, that's definitely lots of opportunity but is there a chance that we might cooperate in that way only as long as we really have to? And then when it's all over, then we think, okay, now, now I really need the holiday I couldn't have for half a year. And now I can pollute again because look how much uh, pollution we prevented during the crisis. Um, because Tom, I think as you often say, we don't grow from just having an experience whether it's it's a drug experience or or a crisis experience but it really depends on our choices and if a crisis forces us to make certain choices out of necessity then it's not necessarily the other centered intent behind it so i wonder if that's really the last crisis we need or it's just just one more in a, in a, you know, there, there will have to be more crisis because uh, we're, we're just going to learn a tiny little bit from this one. Yeah, well, evolution is a slow process. And as long as we are just acting and, you know, and, be, and not being, you know, we're, our, our actions come out of what we think we should do. Not We're not really feeling responsible other than we, we feel necessary. If we're whack, working out of fear, then we're not going to learn very much. So no, everybody isn't suddenly going to change state from, from being a self-centered person to, you know, a significantly less self-centered person because of this. This is just one step that a lot of people will learn something. And it doesn't take a whole lot of people. You know, if, if, if even 10% of the people who go through this experience come out of it better, you know, learn something from it, deeply change themselves, that will be a huge success. Just 10%. Most people will probably go right back and, uh, okay, that's over. Let's get back to normal. Those are the people that were fearful. Those are the people who just acting and weren't being and so on. But there's going to be some percentage that's going to grow up because of this. And if that percentage were high enough, then we may not have to have another one of these because we would go clean up that that uh, mess in China that creates these things and other countries that creates these things. We'd help see that and we would immediately when viruses go around think of our old people and are very young and we'd immediately start uh, self-quarantining ourselves because we know that would you know we're responsible you see so if we if we all learn from this and we wouldn't need another one <laughs> but we'll we will get just as many as we need is the you know we get what we need and deserve so as long as we are not paying attention and we're not grown we're going to get more things that challenge us more things that kind of rub our dysfunction in our face and help wake us up and a little learn a little bit, then we'll 
get another one. We'll learn a little bit and eventually we'll get to the point where it's, it's, uh, we'll have enough people who have learned enough that the learning will start to get faster and faster. The more you learn, the easier it is to learn more. And that's true of us as a collective, as individuals. So eventually we're going to work our way up to the point that our learning is going to get faster and faster. And I think we're going to see that in this information age. I don't think we were, we were likely to ever see it in the industrial age, but in this information age, I think we're likely to see it. And the reaction to this virus, I think, is probably the first big thing to really create a difference in the way people are acting. Now, how much in the way people are being, I don't know, but it's going to change some of the way people are being. And that it all adds. Once you grow up, it's, it's easier to grow up more. So it's all part of an accumulative process. So I think it's great. No matter what the fraction is, whether it's 10% or 1% or a hundredth of a percent, I'm all in favor of it because it's all going to add toward an eventual solution. And we'll just keep chugging until enough of us get there that that, that growth curve gets steeper and steeper and steeper the more we, the more we go. So it's been pretty slow over the last couple of centuries. But now we're in the information age. Everything moves a lot faster because we're all plugged in and communicating to each other. And um, I think that we're going to see that growth curve starting to tick up and get a little steeper as we go. And I think this is one of the this may be the kickoff, you know, that gets that gets that going. I hope so. But I'm not going to count on it because I know that we'll get as many kicks in the pants as we need (laughs) to get us there. You know, that's just the nature of the system. Thank you. I also just wanted to ask you if you could quickly comment again on something that you said at the very beginning where um, you know, I wanted to sh- uh, share my interpretation of what you said and you tell me if, if you agree with that or not because you said that the crisis showed that nations uh, really don't cooperate very well yet at a global level. And um, I wondered – so – I think part of the problem was that uh, I think all the other countries in the beginning thought, oh, this is a Chinese problem, and nobody really thought this would be a global problem, and this is why everyone else was really unprepared when suddenly it did spread around the globe. Um, even so, if they had been prepared it and, and would have helped China more just because of that, it would have been out of self-interest in order to ha- avoid spread, you know, the virus spreading to other countries. Um so, uh, I mean, definitely that didn't happen anyway, but I think it also showed that there is no global community, that there is something affecting one country that the others step in to help that one country anyway, if there's a risk of spreading globally or not. Is, is that what you meant, or, or did you still have another? Yeah, that's, uh, pretty, that's pretty much what I meant. I mean, think about it, uh, uh, Frank, you're, you're from Germany. That's not obvious on your key, so I say that so other people will know. If in Germany, There was a part of Germany that uh, had conditions that would create these viruses that would travel around the world or even just travel through Germany and, you know, kill hundreds of thousands of people. And it happened, you know, five years ago and four years ago and three years ago and last year. And it happened this year. And that's just something that happens in Germany. You know, they, they just have this area of Germany that creates viruses and they spread around and kill a lot of people. Well, if that was a German problem, how long do you think that would last before the Germans would get together and fix it? It wouldn't last long at all. 
they would get together as soon as they realized they had the problem. They would fix it just as soon as they could because they say, this is a problem we need to fix. Because after all, Germans are getting sick and dying from it. Not a good thing. Well, we've had this going on in the world now for as long as anybody can remember. I mean, we had flus go through in what the late 1800s and early 1900s. It killed many millions of people. Eh. So what? Stuff happens, you know. We just never did anything about it. And it happens again and again and again and again. And on a global level, it's not just one country, but millions of people all over the globe are dropping dead because of these viruses. Oh, and it's a, not a good thing to have that happen. But what do we do about it? Eh, not so much. You see, if that happened inside of a country, almost any country, you know, China was, was sort of ready for this. It's happened in China a lot. And China had a lot of stuff on the ground to deal with this. The reason they got off as easily as they did is that they were more prepared, probably, than than most of us. Asia was in generally more prepared because they had something like this go through a year or so ago that had a really high death toll that was a lot bigger problem in Asia than elsewhere. So they were kind of a little more prepared than us, but not enough they're not taking it seriously enough to clean up that market, to find other ways of fixing that problem, to find other ways of getting the Chinese the meat they want. You know, they're, they haven't solved that problem. They're just getting better and better at dealing with what that problem produces, not necessarily solving the problem. Could it be solved? Sure, it could be solved. But nobody's doing it. So they're solving their internal problem. You know, there's less Chinese being affected than are being affected all the rest of the world. So they're working on the Chinese part of it, but the rest of the world is on their own. You see, that's the problem. It's the attitude we have. Whereas if that just happened in Germany or just happened in the U.S. or just happened in the U.K., man, it wouldn't be a problem for for very long. That would get cleaned up in a hurry and just wouldn't happen anymore. Well, we don't see that globally. We don't see it at all. And a lot of global problems we don't notice. You know? Yeah, I would agree that uh, the problem is that we all identify first and foremost at the nation level. I mean, even in Europe, um, you know, we have a united Europe somehow, but everybody feels they're a citizen of their country and only then maybe European compared to the rest of the world. But we need to get there that everybody really feels a, a, a Yeah, a, a global citizen and responsible for everyone equally. Yeah, but that's, yes. that's going yes. to take some time. To, yeah, we need to create this global awareness that we are citizens globally as well as nationally. And we need to let go of some of our nationalism and grasp some globalism in the sense that our actions affect other people globally now. And we should need to take responsibility for that. So that's really what my, my point was. And that doesn't exist. We just don't have that global awareness. Thank you. Uh, Tom, uh, there is a comment that I would like to make, and I also have a question about it. Um, I would like to look at this whole topic from the lens of different reality models, um, specifically the materialism-based reality models and more idealism-based reality models such as MBT. 
Um, according to reality, to models of reality based on materialism, our thoughts, emotions, intentions, and the state of our consciousness are nothing more than brain activity and are thus seen as things that are of little consequence and importance since they don't affect the reality that we live in directly. They only do so indirectly through affecting our physical behavior. Whereas with a model of reality such as MBT, where consciousness is fundamental, almost the opposite is true where each one of us is to some extent co-creating the shared reality that we live in, not only through our behavior, but also through our thoughts, emotions, intentions, and the quality of our consciousness. Many people, because of the materialistic worldview that is dominating our society, only see value in changing what we do on a behavioral level, things such as keeping social distance, washing our hands, and so on. All of which is, of course, very important. And I do feel that in some spiritual circles, the importance of taking responsibility on a physical or behavioral level is taken too lightly. But aside from that, I feel that we as IUOCs also have a great responsibility in what we contribute through our thoughts, emotions, intentions, and the quality of our consciousness. So I would like to hear you talk about this topic and how we could best optimize our contribution to this current crisis from all angles. Okay, well, you know, the the uh, materialist view of the world uh, should be augmented. You know, if, if, that's, if that's a person's worldview and they are materialist, it should be augmented with a sense that ethics matters, responsibility matters. And if it doesn't, if ethics and, and morality, you know, responsibility, if those things matter to a materialist, then a materialist is going to get to a similar place as an idealist. They're going to look at their, their thoughts and what they do and the effect it has on other people and find responsibility to do it. And even if they're just, uh, you know, everything's material, it's all the brain and this and that. If they have ethics, if they have morality, if they take responsibility for, you know, how their choices affect other people, if they see that as an ethical concern, then you could pretty much get to the same point, whether you're a materialist or an idealist, as far as your behavior in the world. Okay, so that way, the behavior really wouldn't change much, whether you're an idealist or materialist. So a materialist with ethics and, and morality is going to act very much in the world like an idealist that sees consciousness and becoming love as the answer. Because the ethics and the, and the uh, morality Basically, love is the answer. You see, it gets, it comes to the same point. But where the difference is, is that the idealist also has an intention that the reality grow, that the reality be better, that people find peace and happiness and that, uh, you know, we don't have hunger and we don't have pollution and these kinds of things. So the idealist may spend some time meditating on these things, putting some effort into these sorts of things that the materialist would never do because the materialist wouldn't see that as being useful. So the mater the idealist actually can be more powerful in changing the future probability, putting more effort, 
into modifying future probability because they know there is such a thing as future probability and they know that intent modifies it. So that gives them a, a power and an ability that the materialist doesn't have. But an ethical materialist and an idealist should more or less act about the same. There won't be a whole lot of difference in the physical action. But there could be a lot of difference in the intent because you can be ethical without really putting much effort into, you know, making the world a better place. All you, all it is is very personal. I will act ethically. My actions will be, you know, more ethical. If you're an idealist, it's not only that my actions will be ethical, but I will also have compassion and I also will have empathy. And I'll have these other things that the materialist would deny even exist. And those things are helpful as well. So that's the way I see the basic difference between the, the, you know, the materialist and the, uh, you know, the, I guess we should say the realist, you know, viewpoint. There's other, there's other things beside materialism in that realist group. Uh, I guess there's other things, you know, in the idealist group as well other than uh, MBT, but so that's how that breakdown, I think, occurs. Idealism is good because it gives people a deeper understanding of the nature of our reality, and the materialist has a pretty superficial attitude about reality. Now, we what we find that's problematical is a lot of materialists don't seem to care a whole lot about ethics because they justify bad behavior with their materialism, you know, as in social Darwinism, which is not Darwinism at all. It's a justification of, well, the people who are doing well and have a lot of money and resources, that's because they deserve it. They floated to the top of the, you know, of the social chain and the people are at the bottom and struggling. Well, that's because they deserve that too. They're just not as productive and not as whatever as the people at the top. Well, they call that social Darwinism it has nothing to do with Darwinism. It's a, it's a simple excuse of bad behavior. You know, that you can, you can, uh, you can run over other people. You can take advantage of other people. And if they, if they allow it and they fall for it, well, then good for you and bad for them. You're the winner. They're the loser. And that's okay because that's just, you know, the nature of life. So unfortunately, a lot of materialists, a lot of capitalists get into this idea of ethics doesn't really matter and they're really not responsible for anybody but themselves. And, uh, the only thing that really matters is self-interest, you know, and the way that you get cooperation is by giving everybody some self-interest. Okay. You get people to cooperate by giving people a, you know, a, a uh, you know, a self-interest in the solution. Well, of course, that works to help people cooperate through their own self-interest. You know, you work with us and here's what's in it for you. But that doesn't help anybody grow up. That may help civilize, you know, the world that you're in, sort of like people acting better. So acting better out of self-interest, cooperating out of self-interest is the way you get fearful people to cooperate. We'd like to get rid of fearful people. We'd like to have people who are not fearful, people who work from a principle of love and caring of other people. And there you don't need self-interest to have them want to be helpful and to have them care. 
So only the fearful need the self-interest. Only the self-centered need the self-interest in order to cooperate. So, yes, you can get cooperation among the self-centered that way. And if you cooperation is better than not cooperation, then, okay, find self-interest for everybody in the project you're trying to do, and your project will be more likely to succeed. But that's just because the world is mostly made up of people who are self-centered. It's not really the way we want to end up. You know, it's not the way we'd like the world to be. We'd like the world to cooperate because cooperation is just a better thing for everybody. That's the motivation we'd like, not because there's something, you know, in it for them. Well, during this crisis, uh, there's a lot of people basically sitting at home. And I was just thinking, well, probably a large part of those people are sitting at home with a fearful attitude, an attitude of, of victimhood. Mm-hmm. And thinking of how of, of doom scenarios and how terrible all of this is, and as we said, that's why this this interview is, has been so so refreshing. But I was think I was just asking myself, um, how powerful could it be, even if it's just an internal thing, if people would take on an attitude of uh, positivity, of having a a good outcome, and seeing it as a learning opportunity for themselves and for the world at large. How how large do you think the effect of just changing the internal attitude of people could be on crises such as these? Oh, it'd be huge. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's all about attitude. If you could change people's attitude from negative to positive, wow, you'd have a, a huge sea state change. And that's the, the problem is the only way to change that attitude is to change the person. Now, you can change the action by, you know, by uh, having them act better, act as if they had a positive attitude. You know, go around and put on a nice fake smile and, and don't say any negative words. And, and that would help just getting people to act better. But to get them to actually not be negative, they'd have to change. They'd have to grow up. And that growing up would be a huge difference. So getting them just to act less negative would would also be a, a big help, but it isn't going to really help them grow up any. But it would help everybody else act better as well. Because one person shouting the sky's falling, you know, makes another person fearful and look up. So you have two different effects going on there. One's actual growth of an individual becoming less negative and the other one is an individual acting less negative. Okay, Tom, I think Jim and Olaf are having a little chat on the sidebar here. I can see that. Jim, did you want to make any comments about uh, bringing it into the animal kingdom? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I was just going to leave it in the the public chat, but I don't know that everybody's looking at it. So, um, yeah, happy to. This whole conversation about the mentality of the materialist versus the idealist also I think could be extended to how we treat animals. Uh, if, you know, I could imagine, I don't know if there are studies done in this regard, but I could imagine that as a materialist, I tend to think of myself as, you know, somebody who's, it's lights out when I die. Um, you know, my consciousness is coming from my brain. You know, I need resources to survive. Uh, the animal kingdom is mine. You know, whereas the idealist, a certain a certain subset of idealists, those who believe that all animals have consciousness and 
we're all connected in the greater sea of consciousness are going to also then treat animals with more respect um, would be my guess. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm one. I'm one of those latter ones. You know, animals are all conscious. All consciousness is netted, and all conscious critters are doing the same thing. They're all making choices, and by those choices, they evolve the quality of their consciousness. And there's just different levels of capacity and and uh, and uh, capability among consciousness. But consciousness pretty much is everywhere, including insects and. You know, it doesn't have to be just dogs, cats, and horses, kind of our favorite uh, animals, but, you know, bugs as well. Some bugs. I don't know about all bugs, but some bugs, I'm convinced, are conscious. Yeah, I've always kind of wondered about mosquitoes and wasps, but <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go with everything being conscious. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. You know, it depends. The difference is, does the bug make a free a free will choice? That's how I would define consciousness. If, if, if all the choices they make are just instinctual or hardwired, then they're not conscious. They're just, they're just reacting to a stimulus. It's a stimulus response and it's not really any thought, no free will involved. But if they are making choices that are not just hardwired, they're making free will choices, then they're conscious. Even if it's only at the level of a, you know, of a, of a wasp or a mosquito. I don't know. I, I've seen some pretty clever mosquitoes. Now, whether they just uh, have clever hardwiring or not, I, I don't know. And that's a tough thing to figure out, but uh, whether they are or not, but maybe. Hey, uh, Tom, Ilona, who is coming to our next MBT Immersive at Suwannee Inn this coming July, emailed me a question to ask you today. And here's what she wrote. She wrote, today I was drawn to a particular video of Tom's where he speaks about accessing the databases of particular interest to me right now would be to access the probable future database and get answers on what I as an individual or we as a collective could do to shift the probability of a speedy recovery of humanity. We collectively might need something like this to get us back to compassion and core human values. And I would love to think that this is a wake up call as we've been discussing today, but not as a push into a deep and long depression for humanity. I also believe that if a group of like-minded people could go out and access that probable future database, could we get the answers on what we can do to shift that future and shift us into a different, more positive state? Could I please ask Tom what he thinks of it? And would he contemplate possibly running a virtual binaural beat session or something similar with a group of similar-minded people who would all possibly be able to focus on the same thing? Well, there's two aspects to this. One... Uh, one of them is called the Maharishi effect, where um, the students at Maharishi University, which I think is in the Midwest someplace, they um, got a large number of people, and by large number, I think probably in the thousands, to all focus their intent on lowering the crime rate in Washington, D.C., and they were successful in doing that. Over the time that they made that effort, the crime rate did indeed tick down uh, to a point that was lower than it normally goes to. And when they stopped doing it, it went back up again. And they made it go up and down a few times that the statistical significance was pretty high that they were indeed having that effect. It wasn't just chance. So, yes, you can get a lot of people together to pool their intents 
to help change an outcome. That works. That's intent moving future probability. And if you have a whole lot of people that are putting their intent to things like uh, solving hunger, you know, world peace, uh, being nice to each other, growing up, becoming love, then that will actually make that happen sooner. On the other hand, the other side of this is getting any kind of information out of the database is really not germane or, or not necessary for growing up. Because you get data out of the database won't help you grow up. You can maybe get data that gives you a probability of how long it'll take before, you know, you get to go to the concert again, you know, in the stadium or that sort of thing. You can get probabilities, but that's really just information. You know, inquiring egos want to know. Better to just let life play out and let stuff happen, and then you get to deal with it when it happens and live gracefully with uncertainty. That, to me, is a much better thing than trying to look in databases and figure out what's going to happen and then try to modify your behavior based on what you think is going to happen. That is just looking for trouble, and I don't, you know, I don't suggest that you do that. It's not really a good idea because what you're doing when you do that is you're creating a bubble for yourself to live in. You're creating this bubble where you're looking at future probability and modifying what you do toward a probable future. So now you're not acting the way you would act. You're not acting uh, from the heart. You're not acting you know, as you are or not being, I should say. You're trying to get to a certain endpoint or have things come out the way you want. And that puts you in this bubble of not really living, you know, in the real world. You take yourself out of this place where stuff happens and you get to deal with it. That's how you grow up. But if you always know what the stuff is that's going to happen so you can prepare for it ahead of time and manipulate it to be the stuff you want, now you're living in a bubble that is one of your own creation. And when you live in a bubble, one of your own creations, you're very likely to walk right off a cliff while you're doing that. You're very likely to to uh, not grow up very much because you're not really making real choices and seeing what happens. You're manipulating your world. You live in this bubble. So that's why people that I know of who are, what, very powerful in their ability to manipulate future probability generally don't do it. It's much better to just live with life as it happens and deal with it as it happens. You don't need to know. It's just your ego that wants to know so that you can manipulate things to come out that's best for you. Well, that's not on your path to growth. That's on your path to, you know, control. So I, you know, I live my life totally out of control. <laughs> I don't try to control anything because I realize that there's almost nothing I could control even if I wanted to. Life is too complicated and too many people are involved. It's much easier just to let stuff happen however it does and then deal with it when you get to it. It'll happen or it won't. And I would suggest that people who are sitting at home worried that they might catch this virus or that grandma might catch this virus or whatever else they have to worry about, that worry is not helpful to them. That's a fear. All it does is raise the probability of grandma getting the virus because you're, you're putting energy into that thought. That fear creates what it fears. 
better just to live gracefully with uncertainty, deal with grandma's everyday passes, and work from love. You know, so getting data out of the database to see what we should do next is not really a good idea. Do what you do next because you think that's the right thing to do, not because you think that's the best way to manipulate the world to be the way you want it. But if you want to spend some time working on world peace and happy people in the world and, uh, you know, better health for everyone, we'll do that. That's not a lost cause. And your intent for that will actually help move that a little bit. Not much because you're trying to move a really big thing with, you know, one consciousness, but it will help. And if a lot of other people do it, it'll move it even more. But do it individually or do it in a group. That's okay. Um, it doesn't all have to be done simultaneously unless you're trying to really make a big punch somewhere. Just do it because you care about all the people in the world. If that's your, if you really care about the people in the world and you care about their health and you want to spend time, uh, giving that your intention, then do it. If you don't really care about the world, but you think you should and you're just doing it because that makes you feel better that you're doing the right thing, then it's probably not being helpful. It's coming out of your acting, not coming out of your being. So I find that when you get a whole bunch of people together to do this, often it encourages people to join out of their acting. They're acting, trying to be the way they think they should be by participating. And that's not all that helpful. Better to come up with something that actually helps them change who they are, which is the most, you know, the, the most efficient thing at changing who you are is just dealing with your life with love as it happens. That's the way to change who you are. Thanks, Tom. We're going to go to Oliver next. Oliver, thank you as always for everything that you do to keep the fast start chats up and running. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, I think you have a question for Tom. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a difficult question because, Tom, you already said before that uh, fear is actually the problem here. And um, what I observed so far is that a lot of people, like Frank said, probably have not uh, really come to the point where they're really going to change. And uh, I just want to throw out this concept that I've had in my head for like 14 years. And I just want to get your take on it and see what you say. Um, I'm just going to read my question here. So many years ago, I had the scenario of a mass burnout syndrome popped into my head. The idea was that large amounts of people would be led to the edge where their mind slash ego actually cracks due to being unable to process the enormity of external events. As the mind steps aside in confusion and helplessness, another aspect that's located on the being level takes over control for a while and makes sure that whoever's supposed to pull through this event don't really do anything stupid while the mind is being unable to properly function. As the mind starts to putting itself back together again, it realizes the presence of the being level aspect and that it took care of things in a reasonable and positive way while the mind, uh, while the mind was incapacitated. As a consequence, the mind would then come to the insight that it's a good idea to team up with that being level aspect and thus to become a more functional integrated whole. The problem I saw with this scenario is that it seems likely to be a pretty risky plan of the LCS to kick our collective butts big time, blow our large amounts of minds at the same time in order to allow individual and collective consciousness to shift. 
I put aside this whole concept uh, because I considered it a pretty risky plan. And uh, there's some serious, serious downsides involved as well, which we'll just skip over here. So with what has played out so far in the last weeks, it seems like this could be the beginning of this plot. Um, so far, many people have sim are simply in denial mode. And in order to crack all these rigid minds, a lot more would have to happen. And uh, with every step along the way, the whole thing would get more and more risky and could go really wrong. So I'd like to get your thoughts on whether the LCS might have something like that in store for us anyway, and will intervene and make sure that the whole script stays on track and a positive outcome and on an uh, it creates a positive outcome on an individual and collective level. Like this. Okay. Um, what you're describing is what some people call the dark night of the soul. And that is that people get so distressed, so unhappy, so depressed, so miserable that they hit rock bottom and they can't get any more depressed, more miserable. They're just at the, at the, the uh, very bottom of the barrel in their own life. And they don't see any way out. Nothing but misery. That's called the dark night of the soul. And sometimes that is a turnaround. And it has been for many people. That's a turnaround. When they hit that very bottom, they let go and stop trying to control it. They let go and stop trying to fix it, stop trying to manipulate, stop trying to excuse and, and sidestep responsibility. They just give it all up. And when they give it all up and stop trying to manipulate it, suddenly they get some ideas that help solve the problem. They start thinking about just being, accept it, live with it, you know, deal with it. Whereas before, all of those things they couldn't get to because they were so busy being depressed by it, they couldn't really think about it. So that dark night of the soul turnaround is a thing that does happen to people. Um, but as you say, it's a very risky business. For everyone that hits the dark night of the soul and rebounds to something whole and, and good, there's another one that gets to that point and pulls the trigger and commits suicide. Or maybe 10 that commit suicide for everyone that bounces back the other way. So I don't know what that, how that breakout would be, but it is a very risky, you know, risky way to go. So I don't think that the LCS would make that a plan because it's a pretty high risk plan and it has to be pretty individual for people to get there. And if you had a whole bunch of people get there at once, they would tend to just sink into self-pity with each other. Whereas most of the dark night of the soul turnarounds of people that I have read basically are all singular individual cases alone. They hit that, that bottom alone. And that's one of the things that helps them make the turnaround is that they are so totally alone and they have nothing they can rely on. They have nobody to commiserate with. They just have themselves, they give up, let all go, and suddenly a solution occurs. They start to see things differently, you see. But if that were done on on mass to where there was lots of people doing that, I suspect they'd all be encouraging each other to have, you know, self-pity parties and, 
instead of rebounding with something positive, I think it would just be a disaster. So I, I think the downside would be a lot bigger than the upside. Now, the system knows a whole lot more about what's likely to happen and what the probabilities are than I do. So if it felt that that was going to work really well, then it might push things that far, but I kind of doubt it. I think when things get pushed that far, it's us doing the pushing, not the system. The system generally tries to let everything right itself, tries to let everybody, you know, work it out on their own. The system really doesn't like to manipulate people to grow up because if you get manipulated to grow up, you didn't earn it. It's not yours. You really don't grow up. You get a a little, oh, I got it now. And then your life gets a little better. But then two or three years later, you're right back in the same place, which means you didn't really get it. You only thought of a way that you could act better. And you didn't really get so much as how to change yourself. Or you just hit another snag. So I think it unlikely that the system would do something that dramatic. I think it would be way too risky. And it would probably de-evolve on itself. If you had a bunch of people all, you know, hitting this, uh, this, this wall simultaneously, I think that would, that would make it non-productive. I think it's generally only going to be productive when it's an individual alone faces this, this thing and, and, uh, bounces back from it. But there's any number of writers and, and authors and other people who have been through this position where they sink to the very bottom of where there's doesn't seem to be any meaning left in their life. And that's when they make a comeback. That's when they turn around the other way as they're sitting there, you know, figuring out what, what way they're going to use to commit suicide and they have no hope. Suddenly they start seeing things in a different light. And yes, it happens, but not as a mass event. I think it'd be very un, unproductive as a mass event, as individual events, it happens. But what the ratio is of the ones that bounce back from the ones that don't, I don't know. So did that answer your question, Oliver? I know you've had this question a while. So if I didn't quite get it right, uh, uh, go ask ask me some more. No, no, it's, uh, it's okay. I understand that the, the risk is really the big thing. That's why I also I threw it out the window when many years ago, but now as things are looking like it could be that scenario, I just thought I'll throw the yeah. idea at you and see what you have to say. I'd also be interested at what Jürgen and maybe Jim have to say or add on to what you said, Tom. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really difficult. There is um, a friend of mine, Steve Taylor. He wrote a book about when people reach the dark night of the soul and he collected their stories, <clears throat> which led to an awakening experience. So after they had the awakening experience going through trauma and, and the dark night of the soul, it changed their, their lives. And it is feasible that if a large enough number of people going through a very traumatic episode collectively, there's a chance that if there's a large enough number, like the hundreds monkey syndrome, Uh, they they have individual awakening experience that they may actually trigger a collective aspect of this experience. And then uh, we may move a shift, make a little shift and a step forward collectively. 
that that I I don't think is impossible. It's not impossible, really. Okay, thank you, Jim. Anything you want to add? No, I think uh, I think uh, Tom and Jurgen covered it very well. Um, the only thought I had when listening to that is that I, I feel like there are times in people's lives when they do hit rock bottom or or have you know a period of despair like that where they get a, a kind of a kick in the seat and it isn't necessarily the system as a whole doing it it could be some other entity um you know if you will a, a spirit guide kind of thing um i've had one or two occasions in my life where i've felt that myself it wasn't a logical uh, type of thing that happened. It was something deep. And so I, you know, I think on an individual basis that that can also happen, but on a collective basis, um, like Tom said, uh, not so sure, not so sure that's, that's the right way to, uh, to learn and move forward. Yeah. The thing is how many people actually have to go through it? I mean, it could be, uh, that it also doesn't take an extreme situation. It's all about perception. I mean, maybe some people are in it right now as we're speaking, already because they are at that point already and maybe some others are at it maybe a few weeks later and maybe if they take it step by step and not too many at the same time and the crisis is stretched out a little but also not too much i mean i i think it could still work and uh, for me i mean i've gone through the process i can have to say that's why i came up with the idea that it could work for others is that the only thing i actually had to do is to give up it was everything i had to do i had to come to the point where i had to say I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. And that was my ego going out of the way and saying, I can't do this anymore. And that's all it took. Everything else went by itself from there on. So I thought that was kind of easy and it should work for others. Yeah, there's another aspect I find. Uh, it's a collective learning aspect, you know, and mostly we are not conscious of it. I notice when I meditate, when I'm meditating, I become very aware of thoughts which are not of my own making even to the extent that I can listen to conversations of total strangers. And I then realize basically our brain functions a bit like a, a radio receiver, which receives and sends information out. And on a subconscious level, we are all participating on this level of the, on, of the collective. So if enough individuals um, have a thought, or even to the extent uh, that if somebody invents something, you know, comes up with a new idea, you very often find two or three people coming up with the same idea. And that is part, that, that is a part of, of the collective, of the greater consciousness system, which is not an individual-based system is, is a collective system. And so it's possible if if a lot of people, as uh, Tom said with a Richie thing, pray or do whatever they like, they, they can shift, um, shift the learning process to a certain extent. As we have noticed through uh, the Internet, more and more people speaking about a certain subject, positive and negative, and more and more people learning as a result. And I'm always surprised when I think I've come up with a new idea. There are always other people who come up with the same sort of idea. So what I've done, actually, I've just picked something from the collective, thinking it was my own idea. I don't know. What do you think, Tom? Mm -hmm. 
Well, the, uh, I agree. The collective consciousness is, is a thing that, you know, we're all netted and every conscious is netted with every other. And that includes the dogs and the cats and the bumblebees as well. We can all, uh, we all can interact with each other and we all do interact with each other. And any group of which you consider yourself to be a part, you're part of that collective consciousness of that group and you affect it and it affects you. Uh, if it's a very large group, then it probably affects you more than it, you affect it, but your, your part is put in there. But sure, good ideas, big ideas, inventions. I mean, we have that happening all the time. You know, who invented the radio? Well, you know, somebody invented it here, but somebody else, you know, there's three or four other places that were right there that had similar ideas at just about the same time. That's because you have a lot of people thinking about the same idea. They tap into that collective consciousness and they actually work together, if you will. They pick up on each other's thoughts and they all get to the aha at about the same time because that's the nature of collective consciousness. It's your intent and your focus is what connects you or disconnects you from other people in that collective consciousness. So other people who are thinking in the same thoughts you are well, you tend to connect to those and the ones that are thinking very differently than you, you tend to disconnect from those. And that's again, why people can get themselves trapped in a bubble. You know, you have to be a little careful that you uh, don't just only look at the, you know, you don't only just talk to the people who agree with you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a little bit of a risk as well. And, and uh, that can happen in a collective consciousness. You can, you can end up, working yourselves up in a group to some kind of conclusion just because your collective consciousness is reinforcing each other. So it's a little something to be aware of. Yeah, I think, uh, Oliver, that moment you said you had to let it go. I think what you really let go of, that final thing that you have to let go before everything gets clear, is self-pity. I think that's the fear. It's the self-pity. When you no longer have the self-pity, then suddenly clarity can blossom in your mind. But that self-pity is a fear. And uh, once you let that go, you're you're open. And though I, I agree with uh, Jürgen, uh, there's nothing to say that a collective couldn't do that. It's certainly possible for the collective to have a dark night of the collective soul, I guess, and come to ahas at a similar time because that's where they're heading in a collective consciousness. That certainly works, but you also have a, um, the, the, you have a little more of a problem. I guess you have a, an advantage in the sense that you have a lot of people pulling on the oars in the same direction, but you have a disadvantage in that you also have a lot of people that have to get to the point where they let the self pity go. And, uh, so when you do it with a large group of people, you have to pretty much have the whole group, you know, working working together. And as anybody knows, getting a group of people to work together is, is uh, sometimes problematic. But yes, collective consciousness is everywhere. That's what Jung called archetypes. It was basically just different collective consciousness entities. So anytime we think we're a member of a group, if we think we're a member of the Boy Scouts, then we start becoming part of the collective consciousness of the Boy Scouts or of, you know, whatever group. 
and we can we can be a Boy Scout and reject that collective consciousness. That's possible. But as much as we see ourselves as a member, then we accept that collective consciousness. That's what makes culture culture. Culture is basically a collective consciousness agreement about what being nice is all about. Okay, well, thank you. Tom, we we're going to go to TD next, but she's disappeared off the video screen. I'm hoping she can still hear us. She's still there. TD, are you there? Yeah, I'm here <laughs> in <Thank> the darkness. <laughs> yeah, hello, Tom. It's so nice to meet you by the fireside again, especially now during these times. Um, yeah, I would like to sort of go back to the topic love again. And because um, uh, Vanessa and I, we were chatting uh, yesterday, I think it was, and we said that love is definitely in the air these days, that we can really see that people connect in a new way and we talk to each other much more and we care about each other much more. That That's really, really a trend that we can see both at work and in private life. Um, here in Sweden... Uh, we still go to work and we're not isolated. Um, so the only thing here is that we don't, we cannot gather 500 people together. But apart from that, we can go, go out. Anyway, uh, tomorrow is Monday and we'll go to work and we'll meet our colleagues and again, and uh, many people are scared. So I was thinking, uh, what are the messages that we can say to people to give hope? I guess we could not say that this is an opportunity for us to grow, that that wouldn't make sense to most people. But what can we, how can we give hope to people um, that we meet and that we talk to these days? Well, I think the biggest thing we can do to help keep things positive is to be positive ourselves. If you go to work and the work environment is everybody talking about how bad it is and how frightened they are that they might get it and so on, that's going to generate a lot of negativity among the people there. So the way to, the way to combat that is to be positive and to be cheerful and to be careful in the sense that let's say if you end up with a little uh, sore throat and feeling a little warm, then maybe you ought to go ask, go down to the infirmary wherever you work and ask for a mask because you might be coming down with something and you don't want to share it. Um, so if people are, are aware of what they can do to minimize their probability of catching it and probability of, of giving it, then be as cheerful as you can be. You know, well, here we are, you know, and we're, we're at work. Got to turn that crank and pay the bills and, you know, make the products that we make and meet the people they have to meet and we'll do the best we can and, and hope everything turns out all right. Again, just being graceful with uncertainty. But I think being positive yourself is the key thing. If more than half the people are negative and grousing, then the whole office is going to be kind of negative and grousing. But if most of the people are are smiling and and uh, okay, then the whole attitude will be up. Like here we are, we got to do what we got to do. So let's do it and do it with a smile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Of course. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Thank you very much. You know, Tom, I think that is the, the perfect place to leave it on a very positive note. It's been a great fireside chat today. Very positive indeed. Uh, thank you to everyone for joining us today. Thank you at home for watching. Uh, we do have a great opportunity here. We really do. Be thoughtful of others. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay positive. And let's hope that this new normal makes a long lasting difference. Thank you very much for joining us.